Ladies and gentlemen, this is Judy Wilkinson, president of the California Council of the Blind, officially opening the 86th conference and convention of the California Council of the Blind, our first ever Zoom conference, and welcome to everybody listening on ACB Radio. Thank you for joining us, and we're delighted to have this convention uh, over the radio, and, and we're doing this webinar, and Deb Cook-Lewis is our Zoom assistant this afternoon, and thank you, Deb, for all the help you've given us over these past few weeks. Um, I don't have any uh, preliminary announcements, so um, if, if Liv is in the room, would you raise your hand, Liv, so that we can have the invocation? Liv, remember it's star nine that you want to be pressing on your phone. Yeah, if he's on the phone, right. It's, his hand is not raised. Her hand? Her hand. Her hand Liv, is not raised. Uh, okay, well. Um, we'll, I think we'll then move on and, uh, we'll reverse things and do, um, the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, ladies and gentlemen, before we do the pledge, is there anybody who has any kind of questions? We are going to talk about procedures in a few minutes, convention etiquette, and, uh, we're going to read the convention rules in a few minutes. But if anybody has a question, uh, now would be a time you could ask it. So raise your hand, and Deb will let you know that if, if she's ready to accept your call. Sure. So if you're on the telephone, the hand raising is star nine. If you're on the computer or a Mac, it is um, Alt-Y on the PC or um, Option-Y on the y. Mac. Command-Y. It's command Command-Y? No. Um, no. And... And um, Bob is raising his hand. Uh, and okay, Bob. And Bob needs to unmute himself. If you are on a device, then when I when I give you the permission to talk, then it will it will give you a button for that. If you're on a telephone when I do it, it will just automatically unmute you. My question is simple. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, you couldn't before the event, so I got a little panicky. Thank you. Should well, I mute, my, should yeah, I mute you myself were, now? No, were, she will mute no, you. I, Thank you. Will, yeah. Thank you. I'm a happy guy. Thank you. Right. We don't hear any of you until uh, I acknowledge you. So um, that's how this kind of works. Okay. And, and you will also um, uh, be able to uh, – Deb will lower your hand for you, too. Okay. You don't even have to move a muscle. Do All we right. have – Okay, go ahead. Do we have anybody no. else? Okay, all right. Ladies and gentlemen. Oh, um, uh, Donna has just raised her hand, and I'm allowing Donna to talk. Okay. So, Donna, you'll need go to... Go ahead, Donna. She, she, she's... Uh, yes, uh, I'm on my iPad, and it doesn't have a... It doesn't have a, a mute, an unmute, but... I just noticed that when you... Yes, when I told you you could talk, you got one. Otherwise, you don't have one. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. It was uh, when I was trying to describe this, and everybody was already putting up their hands. So when you're allowed to talk, you will have a mute and unmute button. Until you are allowed to talk, you will not have one. And so it's just that simple. All right. Okay. Then um, I think we will proceed with the Pledge of Allegiance then. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you're able to stand and uh, put your hand over your heart and uh, imagine our, the, fl the flag of our great country, the panelists will lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. So please, everyone, join us in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge, pledge allegiance, allegiance to, to the, the flag, flag of the United, United States, States of America. America. And, and to the, to the republic, republic for which it stands, one, one nation, nation under God, under God, God indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And speaking of liberty and justice, we will now have a moment of silence in solidarity with everyone seeking racial and social Justice. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. One more time, I'm going to uh, see if Liv is with us. And you know what? God will understand if we need to bring Liv on. Uh, a little bit later or at the beginning of another session, we'll do that. But we will get our invocation certainly uh, at some point. So, Liv, if you're on a telephone, press star nine, and I will – I still don't see him. Okay. Her, sorry. Then let's go ahead to – Star nine is not working. Star – it does work if – it. Um, I mean, there's not any other way. Okay, because she keeps pushing star nine, and she yeah. says that it we can't see her hand raised. Right, that's correct. We're not seeing it. So it's something about the phone connection, probably, because it it actually it it does work. I mean, that's not something we can fix if it's not working. I'm really sorry about that. Okay, we are going to move on and uh, talk about solving this at a, at another point. Yeah. Right now, I'm going to turn it over for convention etiquette. Actually, Deb has pretty well done this, but Rob, people want to hear your voice. Again, Rob has been instrumental in helping us establish this Zoom webinar platform. He issued all the panelist invitations, and uh, we wouldn't be here without Rob. So, Rob, take it away. Well, thanks, Judy. And as you say, Debbie, uh, Deb already uh, took care of a lot of it, but uh, just a quick note for the the participants that they won't see other uh, names uh, who, of other participants. And um, so she's already covered all the keyboard commands and so forth. So I just, I just want to uh, let's just get this convention started. So that's all. <laughs> that's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, that, that was great. And now then we're up for something that's going to take a few minutes and it's the adoption of the first time 
since our new bylaws have been in effect that we as a state have actually officially had convention rules. I'm going to turn it over to our first vice president, Gabe Griffith, to talk uh, to deal with adopting the convention rules. All right. Thank you, Judy. And uh, as you said, we uh, in our bylaws last year adopted uh, uh, one of the things in there is that at the beginning of each convention, we will adopt uh, convention rules. And with this year having uh, a virtual convention, we uh, had to kind of modify what we originally envisioned those rules to also encompass the virtual nature of our uh, convention this year. And uh, at this time, I would like to have the reading of those rules for everybody. And Deb, I believe you have the recording for those. I'm ready to do that right now. Mm -hmm. All right. If you'll play those, that would okay. be great. Uh -huh. CCB Virtual Convention Rules 2020. Section 5.2.1 of the California Council of the Blind Bylaws requires that at the beginning of each convention, the membership assembled shall adopt convention rules. The rules for the 2020 virtual conference and convention are set forth below and divided into three parts. Zoom webinar platform rules, the convention standing rules, and voting instructions. Zoom webinar platform rules and etiquette. Registered attendees may join the convention via the Zoom webinar platform or by listening in on ACB radio. As used in this document, Zoom Webinar Platform, or Zoom Platform, refers to the use of a landline, mobile phone, or computer to participate in the convention. If you attend using the Zoom Webinar Platform, the following rules apply. 1. All participants will automatically be muted when you enter the Zoom Platform. 2. Only those participating via the Zoom Platform will have the ability to call for the floor or speak to the assembly during the convention. Three. If you are seeking the floor for any purpose, you must raise your hand to join the queue to be recognized. From your landline phone, press star 9. Press Alt-Y on your PC or Command-Y on your Mac. And on your smartphone, locate the Raise Hand button at the bottom of the screen and double-tap. Important! The Raise Hand command is a toggle. If you enter the command a second time, you will lower your hand. The moderator will always lower your hand for you. 4. Asking for the floor. The moderator will alert the chair that someone is asking for the floor. This will result in the chair recognize you, and the moderator will unmute you, allowing you to speak. The moderator will then lower your hand. When you are finished speaking, the moderator will then mute your line again. Virtual Convention Etiquette The conference and convention is a live event. To ensure a good experience for all attendees, rules must be followed. Anyone not following these rules may be dropped from the convention and could be blocked from attendance. A. Remember, you will need to raise your hand when you wish to ask for the floor. Wait to be recognized by the moderator. The moderator will alert the chair of those seeking the floor in the order hands are raised. B. While your hand is raised and you are waiting to speak, make sure your surroundings are quiet. Turn down the radio, ask others in the room to please stop talking, stop rattling papers, washing dishes, setting the microwave, etc. Remember that background noise is amplified when you are on the air and it is irritating to others. C. The use of foul language, any inappropriate use of the chat box, etc. will not be tolerated. Any individual engaging in such behaviors will be immediately dropped and blocked by the moderator. All convention matters requiring a vote will be handled in accordance with the CCB bylaws, the 2020 convention standing rules, CCB tradition, 
and the latest version of Robert's Rules of Order. The Bylaws Committee co-chairs will serve as parliamentarians. 2020 Conference and Convention Standing Rules 1. Each debatable issue before the convention must be limited to approximately 20 minutes with a two-minute time limit per speaker, alternating between affirmative and opposing speakers. A majority of the members must agree in order to extend debate for an additional period of time. This will be done by using the raise hand feature on Zoom. The moderator will alert the chair if there is a majority. A. Motions to close debate will not be recognized by the chair during the first debate period. After the first debate period, properly made motions such as, I call for the question, or, I move the previous question, will be handled by the chair and voted on by the assembly. B. The chair may close debate when no one seeks the floor. C. Each member is respectfully urged to speak directly to the issue before the assembly and avoid unnecessary and time-consuming dialogue. D. No member will be recognized a second time to debate unless there is not anyone else wishing to debate on that side. E. The chair shall appoint a timekeeper at the beginning of the debate period. 2. Recognition to speak will be given to those members who properly address the chair. Motions that may interrupt a speaker may be called by using the raise hand feature on Zoom, responded to by the chair, and explained by the mover if requested by the chair. Examples point of order, point of information, parliamentary inquiry, question of privilege, call for orders of the day, etc. 3. Only those members who have registered for the convention will be permitted to exercise voting privileges either as delegates or individuals. 4. Nominating and seconding speeches shall be limited to five minutes per candidate with a speaking time allocated according to the candidate's wishes. A person nominated for an office more than once shall be given one minute for each subsequent nomination. 5. Anyone meeting the requirements of voting membership in CCB in accordance with the CCB bylaws is entitled to vote on any matter coming before the convention, provided that the person's name appears on a chapter or affiliate certified membership list submitted 30 days prior to the convention, or the member has paid their 2020 California Council of the Blind at-large membership dues, and the member has registered for the convention. CCB staff will maintain a list of members eligible to vote. Voting Instructions for 2020 CCB Virtual Convention When an officer or board of directors election is contested, or there is a roll call vote on any bylaw amendment or resolution, a CCB member meeting the voter qualifications set forth in the standing rules will be eligible to vote. Delegate votes will be cast live on the Zoom platform. Delegate votes will be calculated by the CCB secretary and the CCB treasurer. The chair will ask the delegate whose turn it is to vote, as well as the delegate whose turn will be following immediately thereafter to raise his or her hand, and those individuals shall be unmuted. After a delegate has announced their delegate vote, the delegate shall again be muted and his or her hand lowered. A member will cast his or her individual vote either by calling or texting either of the following numbers, 916-639-9953, or 916-639-9958. These numbers will be announced frequently during the election process. CCB staff will be recording the individual votes. Members will be instructed as to when it is their turn to cast their individual votes based on a last name basis in alphabetical order, which will be announced by the chair. 
This will alleviate the possibility of everyone attempting to call or text at one time. After the final letters of the alphabet have been called, we will provide additional time for anyone who has not been able to get through to cast their vote. When voting, you must provide your full name in order to establish your eligibility to vote, as well as the person for whom you are voting, or a yes or no in case of bylaw amendments or resolutions. Your vote will still count even if you misspell the name of a candidate in a text message. CCB staff will not disclose how anyone cast their individual votes. Remember, even if you are a CCB member, your vote will not count if you have not registered for the convention. After the votes are calculated, the chair will announce the outcome. That's it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you to Guillermo for taking on the task of reading those and, and having them recorded. Uh, he did a much better job than I would have been able to do reading them. So thank you again. And thank you to our bylaws committee and to the conference and convention planning committee for uh, putting all those together at this time. Uh, Judy, do you want to handle any questions in voting or, or adopting of this, or would you like me to go ahead? And... Why don't you go ahead and do it? You're getting okay. some practice in here, Gabe. <laughs> okay. Just want to double check. Are there <laughs> any questions at this time on those rules as we have heard them? And if you have a question, please raise your hand and Deb will call on you as you raise your hand. I don't see any hands. Oh, yes, I do. Sorry, she just did. <laughs> okay. Uh, Libby? You'll need to unmute yourself. There she goes. Okay, you there, Libby? Okay, there's no one else with their hand raised, and she, Livy has not unmuted herself. <clears throat> okay. Livy, if you're on the computer, you should have a button on your screen, I believe, to unmute. I'll give you another couple seconds here. I also want to say that Deb knows exactly which order people have raised their hands. So you, she, she, she all would do a better job than in person because she knows exactly who raised their hand first. That's right. Okay, she is okay. <clears throat> has still not unmuted, so um, you might. Okay, I think we're going to have okay. to go yeah, on. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to move forward. So, is uh, I guess the uh, order would be at this point. Do we have a motion to adopt these rules as they've been read? If somebody would like to make that motion, if they could raise their hand, and we're calling you to make a motion. Yes, John has has. Okay. And is John unmuted? I am. I uh, moved that uh, we accept these rules as read. Thank you. And uh, if somebody would like to second, may just raise your hand, and we'll uh, take that as a second. Uh, Robert was the Bob Acosta was the next person. Okay. Um, I second that motion. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. So we have a motion and a second. Is there any discussion on this motion? 
And again, if you if you have a discussion, raise your hand. We'll give it a few seconds. Deb, is anyone raising their hand? Uh, there's a lot of hands, but I don't know which of, of these hands, if you will. If you raised your hand about the just being the first or second, will you please lower your hand and I will I will take and I yeah, that's better. Okay, <laughs> okay, so there are still some questions and I will take the ones that are still here. But if you are don't actually want the want the floor now, then that will help we're us. Not, a whole we're not we're not voting yet. Right. We're not yeah, voting this is, yet. This is just raising just raise your hand if you have uh right. if a question. you want to speak to this motion of adopting those conventions. Okay, so Okay, someone on the phone? Hello, this is Christine Bay. I was just trying to unmute but it won't let me um we can hear you. We down. hear you. We can hear you. I know, but my, it wouldn't put my hand down. I was yes, it won't. Put, okay. It, yeah. On the phone, it, do, it sometimes doesn't put your hand down for you. It's a, a little bit recalcitrant. So I know that we will sometimes uh, see people who, um, you know, who are done with something and, and that's going to happen, unfortunately. So thanks. Yeah. That's, that's no problem. All right. Okay. Um, do you have another person? I don't have any other other hands. Okay. Okay. No. So what we will do, what we'll do at this point then, is if you would like to vote in favor of adopting the convention rules, please just raise your hand. So again, it'll be star nine if you're on a phone. It would be alt, uh, Y on a computer, Command Y on a Mac, or uh, if you're on a, a mobile device, you'll have a button on your phone. So if you just raise your hand, if yeah, you're they're in doing favor it. of this motion. Mm -hmm. They're doing it. Okay. Just a moment. We're still counting. Yeah, we'll give it a moment. All right. Is this a simple majority or? Um... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, this, so this we have we have 41 right now. Okay. Okay. That's... So... Uh, at Let's this point, if you could put your hands down. I'll put uh, them down. No, those I that were voting Deb, yes. maybe just mute or everybody, Deb. Deb. Just mute. I mean, just lower everybody's hand now. Yep. And then once everybody, Deb, if you could let us know once everyone's okay, hands just, are down. All right. All right. There we go. And they're sending them away. Okay. Okay. Uh, everyone, all hands down? Down, artists. <laughs> 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 All right. I down with those hands. Okay. <laughs> okay. All are, right. Are they all hands down yet? Uh, no, a couple of people no. keep putting them up. So, okay. okay yes, they're all down. All down. Okay. All good. Okay. And now, just to be official, anyone who is voting no, please raise your hand. If, so, if you're not in favor of these, of adopting these convention rules, please go ahead and raise your hand now. I do have Give some. Yes, I have three. I have three. Okay. All right. So if those are the only three, then uh, we'll count those. And if you can go ahead and put your hands down now. They did. Okay. And now if there's any abstentions, please raise your hands if you want to abstain from voting on these rules. Do we have any hands up on that? No, I do not see any hands. Okay. Uh, Madam President. I am very happy to actually say two just raised their oh. hands, so I don't know whether okay. those are abstentions or on to something else. Okay. Um, 
Well, oh, they're way, going away. President, so I think those were extensions. Okay. So those were I think they were just accidentals. Okay. So, Madam President, I uh, would like to, I'm happy Great. to say that uh, the majority rules and we have adopted our very first set of convention rules. And I will turn this Thank back you. over to you. Thank you so much. Well, isn't it time for a door prize? I hear all the yeses out there. Lisa Thomas is going to be our door prize guru, and she has a random number generator and everybody's name, and we have a lot of door prizes this weekend. You can only, and, and, and they are mostly, they're $25 gift cards, and uh, you will either be, if you win, you'll be sent, you'll be asked, we'll call you, and you'll ask whether you want a physical card or a link. But uh, you'll be, you'll, you'll, if you're a winner, you'll get a $25 card. And so, um, and also, I had another thought, but Lisa Isay is going to randomly generate a number. So let's go, Lisa, and give, oh, you can only win once. That was what I need to tell you. At this particular event, so that we can include everybody, uh, you don't have to be here to win, and you don't even have to be on Alexa. But you do, you can, you can win just by having registered. So Lisa, let's have a door prize, our first one. So our first door prize winner is number 35, which is Curtis Delzer, D-E-L-Z-E-R. Congratulations, Curtis. And Lisa? you've gotten such good practice let's have another one okay the number is 133 which is mirna vota v-o-t-t-a oh that's so exciting this is our friend from new york so uh -huh. every lots of people know mirna that's great um okay so we have that's given that prize now and um Jeff, I think it's time for me, and, and I want to, let me just say here, if, like, if we get to a part of our program, say a pan, uh, somebody isn't here that's supposed to present or something, we will move on, so everybody should be ready with their piece, even if they think they've got an hour to snooze, so Frank, be ready, bylaws, be ready, you never know when we may uh, call on you, but if, in, for the next section of the afternoon, I'm going to turn uh, things over to our immediate past president, Jeff Tom. Okay, thank you, Judy. Uh, am I being heard? You are. Okay, great. So I am going to present to you a panel on meeting the unmet need for services to seniors with vision loss. And in reality, it's not just seniors that require a lot of these services. You know, folks with vision loss that is recent in origin and even um, those who have had um, no vision for a long time also need these services. So my panel is a real stellar group, I think, and I think you will agree by the end of this uh, panel. First, uh, to, to introduce my panelists, we first have Shalina Heber. Shalina is the new Chief Executive Officer of Valley Center for the Blind. And uh, the folks down in Fresno really sing her praises. Our, our second panelist is Claire Ramsey. 
Claire is an attorney at Justice on Aging, which is one of the leading um, senior advocacy organizations in the country. Um, Claire has been a leader on the Long-Term Care Services and Support Subcommittee for the Governor's Master Plan, on which I serve, and I can tell you she's, she's just great. Um, thirdly, we have Sherry Raisler, who is the CEO for the Sacramento Society for the Blind. And not only has Sherry turned that organization around in a major way, but she is also extremely interested uh, in advocacy and, and works hard in that regard. And finally, someone that uh, probably about, I would say, 90% of you uh, out there know. We have a few non-Californians and, and maybe a few who don't know him. But we have um, the director of the California Department of Rehabilitation, Joe Xavier. So I'm going to, they, they've received some questions in advance, and I'm going to tell you that the last question is slightly changed, so um, be prepared for that. I am going to throw out a name at, when I ask each question, and, and then others who want to chime in can do so. And so we have five questions, and if we have more time, which I hope we will, we'll get, we can have questions from the audience, but let's, let's see where we go. So question number one, is funding for specialized services for seniors with vision loss is estimated to meet not more than 3% of the need. California's share of such federal funding is only $3 million, and there is little expectation that funding under this program will increase in the near future. What thoughts do you have on ways that we can acquire additional revenues for these services? And for my first guinea pig, I'll throw it to Sherry. Thank you, Jeff, I guess. No. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's great to be with you and with the uh, Joe and Shalene and Claire, glad to be on this panel with all of you and everyone else that's joining us. Um, and that's a great question, Jeff, and I think it's one that all of us um, have been tussling with for some time. And, um, you know, heading up a nonprofit, I think we all know that um, we have to always be looking at how are we diversifying those assets that we have to run our programs. And you know, we haven't seen an increase in uh, the OIB funding for quite some time. And so I think that one way of generating more revenue, even though we know in these times it can be challenging, is really looking at the investment in our resource development fundraising programs. Um, what can we do to raise private dollars to support our programs? And I think um, it's also really important to look at private and public partnerships. Uh, where can we work together with other organizations, other businesses to um, sponsor, underwrite some of what we're doing for our, for our senior programs? Um, while also advocating for more funding at the federal and state level. And in that, I really believe in a big tent approach to that, where we really partner with other agencies serving people who are older, whether it's, you know, Claire's organization, um, Leading Age, California, um, well, Leading Age is all over the country, um, Alzheimer's Association, all those big agencies. I think coming together with a big voice about what's needed um, will, I think, serve us all better, even while we all do have our unique um, advocacy needs that we also want to focus on. So I guess that would be my my ideas on how we can work um, to increase some of the funding that we all need. I mean, our allocation from OIB covers maybe 50% of the services we provide to 16 counties. Okay, thank you. Does anybody else have any thoughts from the panel? 
Jeff, this is Joe. Can you hear me? Yes, you're on. Well, first of all, good good afternoon to everyone across the state. And it sounds like uh, maybe even beyond the state. And uh, congratulations to CCB to pull together probably your first virtual conference. Not an easy feat, but admirable and really speaks to the times that we're in. And um, Sherry, I'd just like to add a couple of thoughts to what you've already started. I think that one of the things that we should consider, particularly in the environment that we find ourselves in, is to shift our mindset a little bit from looking at bringing more money into, quote, the OIB system and shift it to bringing expertise from the OIB system and to other systems that can be of service to the uh, population that are losing their vision later in life, um, people that that need that service. One such area is the health industry and thinking about some of the things, um, some of the technology that is available as well as some of the devices that people that are blind need as well as some other aspects of the health industry and the insurance industry that we could be leveraging to serve this population, um, I think would be something that would behoove us and again, particularly in the environment that we find ourselves in of some major budget shortfalls, which are likely to be multi-year. Okay, anyone else care to take a crack? This is Shalina. Um, it's such a privilege to be here to share a perspective on this important topic. And it's an honor to be on a panel with such incredible advocates and champions for our community. Um, and so also my deep appreciation to CCB for including me and to echo Joe, congratulations. We all know from our experience the last few months that coordination of technology like this can be a big challenge and CCB, you made it happen and it's just really fabulous. Um, this topic is so important for our agency in particular because VCB was founded as Friendship Center for the Blind. Our mission at that time was specifically to serve seniors with vision loss to receive services that fill those unmet needs. Um, in our mission at the time, we embraced social inclusion, togetherness, physical recreation as core tenets of our mission. Um, I was just on the phone with our founder actually this past Wednesday and her passion for seniors with vision loss, even though now she lives in Pennsylvania and is running a nonprofit there that kind of fills this mission. Um, that passion for seniors is undeniable and ongoing. And I, for one, am serious about the intense gap in senior services. Um, you know, we're taking a critical look in our own agency um, as to how we can work more holistically towards services, but there is that constant funding struggle. So for me um, and VCB, our, our thought is that with collective advocacy as entities that are interested in doing what we can to help individuals with vision loss, um, we should be able to work together with lawmakers to be able to try and resolve this gap. Um, you know, Sherry brought up private funders and foundations, and it is so imperative that we all have those strong relationships in the community. But sometimes I struggle with asking a foundation or a donor to directly fund programs that are providing basic needs for Californians with disabilities because there are so many other programs that we could do that would be innovative that are serving more than just those basic needs. 
So it would be my hope that as we move forward and, and all get closer and um, are, are more organized that, um, you know, our voices individually only carry so far. But with the united and collaborative appeal, we might be able to work together um, with California in, in a different and innovative way than we have in the past. Um, and make a real splash in our state in creating some funding that helps fill this gap. Great, thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's go on to our second question. And this is something, this is a question that probably everyone on the Zoom platform today and listening in on ACB radio has probably thought about in some way, shape or form. And I'm going to let our panelists give us their thoughts. What societal impacts do you think the COVID-19 pandemic will have on seniors and people with disabilities generally and seniors with vision loss specifically? What will be the impact on service delivery systems? And I'm going to start this time with Joe. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so let me start this with a, a real story. So my 89-year-old mother, who barely speaks English, was about as digitally illiterate as you can imagine in December of 2019. In June of 2020 today, she is using an iPad to live stream mass all by herself. I think that highlights the evolution that COVID-19 um, is forcing upon all of us. It has majorly escalated trends that were already underway, and it is creating opportunities for remote services in ways we never would have conceived of, let alone tried just a mere four or five months ago. There's truly a positive collision taking place between COVID-19 and artificial intelligence that once we have a better understanding of and learn how to harness, I think will offer some real possibilities to change the way that we deliver services. And please don't hear any of this as a replacement for human-to-human -human contact. I think it's an augmentation of that human-to-human -human contact. After all, the reality that any of the people that we serve is somebody that we are touching every day, let alone hours within every day, probably not practical. So these are ways of expanding the impact of our services, as well as expanding the services and service delivery um, from here and moving forward. And I would expect that it will evolve considerably in the next 6, 12, 18 months. Okay. Anyone else? Um, this is Claire. Um, I haven't had a chance to thank everyone for having me here today. Um, really nice to be with all of you. And thank you to CCB for inviting me. Um, when I read this question that Jeff sent, um, I felt a little bit like this is probably going to be like a bunch of college students term papers, uh, topics next semester, because it's such a big, meaty question and one I think we're going to be grappling with for years. But, um, you know, I was thinking kind of across the different service delivery models. And I think one of the things that we're gonna see a big broad push about is sort of how we um, really talk about deinstitutionalization um, on a much broader level uh, for older adults and how we look at 
congregate um, care and also congregate settings. Um, given the safety concerns, given the um, you know real devastation that's happening in nursing homes, I do feel like we're going to have to have different conversations about how people can age safely at home and in the community without increasing isolation and loneliness and depression. Um, I think also um, to Joe's point, I think we're going to see, you know, what in the, I don't even want to say in the past, cause that's probably like, you know, four months ago, <laughs> but you know, people have uh, asked for accommodations for a long time and, and, you know, often don't get what they need. And it seems sort of like too often it seemed like we're granting somebody a favor or, you know, we're doing something beyond what we're supposed to do. And I think this idea that now we're seeing like, oh, there is so much technology that can be leveraged. There are so many um, ways that people can work successfully remotely. There are workarounds to a lot of a lot of things. I'm hoping that those are things we can carry forward as more societal changes that we don't we don't look at them so much as sort of someone's asking for something above and beyond, but something we build into our systems um, in a much better way. Um, and then the other thing I just think, and it somewhat relates to the funding, but I just, I think we've really started to elevate a conversation around um, older adults, um, people with disabilities, people with different sensory disabilities. Like, what do you need to, to be safe, to live in the world, to be part of community? And I think those are conversations that could trickle out as the pandemic stops. And I think it's going to be really incumbent upon all of us to keep those conversations going and that to make sure this is, a, everybody realizes that um, this is going to have large um, implications, both for, you know, how well we treat people, but also, you know, for ourselves, how we get to age, how we get to if, live with disability, um, and that we keep that conversation elevated, even once the pandemic has um, you know, makes it seem like those conversations could stop if we're not careful, but I think we need to keep them going. Thank you. All right. Anyone else? Real quick. Okay. Oh, sorry. Go right ahead. I just wanted to, to say one thing that, that we've been talking about internally that, you know, might be an ongoing impact um, is, is outreach. Um, BCB is, we're taking a real critical look at how in the past have we tried to find um, individuals to serve who are seniors? Um, and uh, I'll tell you the truth, which is that a lot of what we've done is by coordinating with senior centers and coordinating with senior independent living centers. The problem with that is we're reaching a very narrow portion of the population. And oftentimes the senior centers we're going to, they're not inexpensive to live in. And so we've recognized that um, along with our physical approach generally to doing outreach to find seniors to serve, we also have noticed a impact, um, you know, that we might not be doing the best job we could to make sure we find all seniors who need services, not just seniors who are making their way into a, a living facility or making their way to a senior center because they have the support to do so. Um, so both from a COVID and what's currently going on in our society, um, that's something that you know we're we're real passionate about because we want to find those people who have been overlooked and undiscovered because of our narrow um, way of conducting outreach in the past. Thank you. Okay. 
I am going to uh, go on to the next question. And that one is, more than 80% of people with vision loss are 50 and older. Yet there is very little knowledge about the problems and needs of this rapidly expanding population among the general public. How can the blindness community increase public awareness concerning both the needs of this population and its largely unrecognized potential to live independently? And I think I'll call on, I will call on Claire first this time. Thanks, Jeff. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, Shalina's point about outreach, I think, is a big one in terms of, um, you know, we sometimes think we're serving, um, you know, sort of our communities. And when we really look at things, we realize we're sort of serving you know, a band of our community. And that might be because of where something is located. It might be because of who knows about the services and sort of who has a community that spreads the words about the services. And I think we have a real opportunity to um, think about both, you know, how to expand uh, public awareness, but also how to do that in an equitable way and um, how to really reach communities um, that don't typically hear about services. Um, I think it is going to be a struggle in um, the world we're living in now where people are more isolated, but I do think that this is another place to really leverage technology and to leverage the possibility that we can draw communities together who might not typically be within the sort of geographical sort of narrow area where we're often um, relying on for people to come um, and get the services they need. And I also think that, um, there's a real opportunity to sort of work, um, sort of the big tent idea I think is really meaningful and to say, you know, what other groups can we partner with that might actually be serving our community that we didn't even realize was serving them. So I'm just thinking, for example, um, you know, given the increase in needs for like food delivery and things like that, like are there people that are getting food delivery that would not think of reaching out maybe for services, um, specifically to vision loss, but actually are experiencing vision loss and, and could be connected in if they knew that those things existed. So I think there's ways to partner together in um, new ways and innovative ways and hopefully take uh, advantage of the technologies and the new opportunities. Great, thank you. And, and, and food I delivery would... is definitely a point of uh, concern during the last few months uh, across the senior spectrum, I think, and disability spectrum. Okay, anyone else want to take a crack at this one? This is Sherry. I just want to echo what uh, Claire was saying about the connection. I know we we called all of our current and former clients going back like two, two and a half years uh, when this started, just for that reason to say, what else do you need? You know, do you have food? Do you have other? Because we knew that a lot of folks were cut off from um, getting access to things, transportation evaporated. And so I think that is is really critical because, you know, there are a lot, just a lot of nooks and crannies where there is need that, that we are uncovering. Um, I also think it's important with what Jeff, you are doing and Claire also with um, being at the table around the master plan on aging. And we need to make sure we are at the table with other national organizations and groups that have already a very well-developed collective voice, um, but that we're at the table raising issues, whether it's in the field of housing or healthcare, um, Alzheimer's, et cetera, that, um, 
people learn to understand what are some of the unique needs for our community, but also, um, you know, and how we can help them and also help ourselves and the people we serve um, to get better connected and have better, you know, access to all the expertise Joe was talking about. Okay, thank you. Jeff, this is Joe. Yes. I just, I, I mean, the, the, this is such an important topic because this is very much ties back to the whole topic of, of funding, but Sherry, to your point and Claire, your point about leveraging other systems. What we often think of seniors aging into a system and we have to recognize that seniors are often aging in a system. The question is, are we connected to that system? So Sherry, you mentioned housing as an example. Um, there's many other areas like that that we should be looking at. You could even be thinking about a system that's a little bit untraditional for us, but DMV. How do we connect where people are aging and then figure out how to help educate, inform, influence that system so we can bring that expertise Leverage and, leverage and combine resources to really have that kind of impact. Otherwise, we're going to be keep continue to work to carve out the same pie in different pieces. We need to expand that pie, for lack of a better analogy, so that we have access to more resources, not just restructuring the existing resources that serve the blind community. Okay, thank you. All right, I'm going to go to my next question. And I am going to ask this time, uh, Shalita to go first on this one. One common problem in the develop in the delivery of health and social services is that rural areas are dramatically underserved. Give your thoughts on ways to narrow the gap between rural and urban service delivery systems. Well, Jeff, if you were going to ask me a question, this would be the question to ask. Here in the Central Valley, when we talk about rural, we really mean it. Um, you know, we're in a very ag-rich area, which, which brings with it significant challenges in service delivery. And a lot of centers across California do have this kind of rural and urban dynamic. And, um, you know, for us, some of our clients are, are pretty isolated. Um, on farms and only come into town every other week. Um, keep in mind, when I say come into town, I'm talking about their bi-weekly trip to one of our great farm communities of McFarland, which is a population of 15,000. Um, and that's in between Bakersfield and Delano. So on these farms, um, kids are still sometimes homeschooled around the crop cycle and access to what you think of as traditional services for seniors is non-existent and sometimes so fills our ability to reach them. Um, for individuals with vision loss, you know, living in these rural areas, um, I kind of reflected on three keys, I think that could really help us as we move forward in this conversation on narrowing that service gap and delivery and doing what I spoke about earlier and better reaching everyone, not just the people who are easiest to reach. Um, and I think the number one thing is that outreach. If we, if, if we don't know that people exist, if we don't know that they're out there, we just know that in numbers they should be there, but we don't know where they are, um, you know, we can't serve them. So trying to figure out how to better outreach, how to provide information to the community as a whole, 
So that way, hopefully, it can be taken and eventually the message can trickle down to the right people um, is really critical. Um, the second, I think, uh, issue that's really would be helpful in, in narrowing this gap in service delivery is transportation. I mean, we all know that that's just a huge issue in, in this community. Um, and if funding were more readily available to provide transportation to seniors with vision loss, even in rural areas, that would greatly change their access to all services, not just ours. Um, and we, you know, really feel like that could help with quality of life as a whole in a, a holistic manner. The third is uh, remote training, which like we kind of talked about earlier and in, in increasing our technology and in doing remote services, this has been a game changer for VCB during these challenging times. I mean, really, really it's been interesting to see how quickly our clients, for the most part, even our seniors were able to convert to remote training. I, when we first found out about this, um, it was a little bit of a shock and a huge concern. How are we going to keep filling the mission? But, you know, I'm certainly talking to you from home right now still as we try and work together on how to reopen as a center. Um, and we, within a weekend, had converted 85% of our clients over to remote training um, without ever missing a beat. And it was astounding and because we have such, such a fabulous team that made that happen. But, um, you know, some of our rural clients who were near giving up on services due to their challenges in getting to the center are now blossoming as they receive the same quality and quantity of services from our professional providers with vision loss as as their urban counterparts are receiving. So I think it's got to be a multifaceted approach, but it's something that we really have to be critical about, especially, you know, here in the Central Valley. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, I'm going to go to my last question. And my last question was written about a month ago. And as we know, so much has happened over the last several weeks with the um, tragic deaths of several African Americans and the protest, and and hopefully the, you know, uh, the, the change that will be coming over time. And only time will tell, obviously. But but these have been earth shaking events. So in that light, I've changed my last question a little bit. Last year. Governor Newsom made seniors and persons with disabilities a priority in his future vision of California by requiring the development of an aging master plan. Gazing into your crystal balls, in light of both the COVID-19 pandemic and the recent events sounding demands for racial justice, have we lost the chance to bring about systemic changes that will impact California seniors and especially those with vision loss? Or could this be the perfect time to bring about such change? And I'm going to leave it to anyone to, to take on this question. I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, I'll give you guys time to think, so I'll, I'll buy you the rest of the panel a few minutes so you can get your good answers. For me, I think the opportunity to make the change you described, Jeff, is better today than it was even five months ago. And here's why I say that. COVID-19 took an X-ray of our society, including seniors with vision loss, and has really highlighted for us 
so many of the gaps, some that we knew, some that we hadn't thought about. And when it highlights those gaps for everyone to see the way that people have been looking at them, it's going to allow us to really come together and take a more holistic approach to the whole person. And I think policymakers, decision makers are more open to that today than they may even have been five months ago. Will it be easy? No. Is there enough funding? No. But if we, if we do this right, if we lay the foundation from a policy and a concept perspective in terms of, of what a structure might look like that looks at the whole person, I think we have a real chance to make some major impact on how seniors with vision loss can continue to live in their communities with purpose and dignity um, and avoid institutionalization. Thank you. Yeah. All right. And Anyone else? I'm, I'm always an optimist. So um, I think, you know, if anything, we have to, um, uh, you know, drum up that resolve and continue the passion. And we're, you know, we're really seeing the importance of, you know, the three legs of the stool of activism, advocacy, and policy that bring about real change. And that's what we need. And, you know, the people we serve know what we need, what they need, and all of us listening to each other, I think, um, can help us all, you know, move the bar and get better. And, um, and again, I, you know, I really believe in that big tent approach. We're working together and uh, coming up with new ideas building on all the remote teaching that we have, telemedicine, um, you know, resources that are out there. We just have to now make sure that they get out to everyone, um, especially those who are in the more rural areas, in poor communities, et cetera, so that, you know, the abilities to flourish and live independently are truly accessible to everyone. Okay. Thank you, Sherry. Um, this is Claire. I, I like really appreciate that question. It feels like such a big complicated question, partially because obviously the budget picture, which is, you know, unless I've missed something in the last half hour, which is always possible, you know, we don't have, have a real budget worked out yet. And there are a lot of big looming cuts and that, that to me really, and Jeff, I know we've talked about this in the master plan process that felt like a real step backwards um, from this idea of like a big vision planning for 10 years, really talking and thinking about these topics and then having all these budget cuts proposed felt very um, scary and like we were going back to a place 10 years ago uh, when we saw just so many programs decimated. Um, but, but I think the, the shift in the last um, month for me, because, it, oh, I wouldn't say just last month, last three months, the COVID pandemic, I think to me has basically been able to really um, uh, expose like the fact that our older adult communities, uh, people with disabilities are not always well served and are not always thought about. And it's been a, a point of, of unfortunately a very dire reason to have to talk about it, but it's been a reason to say, you cannot ignore this community. You must talk about their needs. You must talk about how we plan, how we invest, how we support um, communities. Um, and then overlaying that with the Black uh, Lives Matter movement and all the protests, um, I feel like, you know, it's a very rare opportunity potentially for like radical systematic systemic change, which is not something like I often think there's that moment in history when you get that. And I do feel like there could be that. And um, 
I think that's partially because people are trying to say, you know, it's not about tinkering around the edges of a system. It's about looking at a system and being like, if we are getting this outcome and that outcome is racist or discriminatory or disadvantages uh, people of color or people with disabilities, then then there's a systems problem and we need to change the system. It's not enough to, you know, do a little like, you know, a little more to the left here, a little more to the right there. It really has to be foundational and it might mean um, really pulling things apart that we've taken for granted and not seeing the opportunity to do that. And I'm, I'm hoping now there is that opportunity. So for the master plan, you know, whether the actual master plan becomes that thing, I don't know. But I think what we can do as advocates and share to your point of like the stool, like the activism, the advocacy and the policy, I think we can use all those levers now more than ever to like really make deep structural systemic change and like and work to and I don't want to use the word hope. I really do the work to get to a system that's much more equitable and much less racist, right? Like anti-racist, not just quote unquote neutral, where people are comfortable that the system produces racist results, uh, even if, uh, you know, no, no bad intention, right? So I just, I find this like kind of an amazing moment in history that we might actually be able to do really foundational change. Great. Thank you, Claire. Shalene, anything to add or? Well, I mean, I think that Joe, Sherry, and Claire have done such a fabulous job talking about such an important topic right now. Um, on a really tough day I had recently, someone reminded me it's critical to just keep in mind that every change brings about a certain level of opportunity. And we have an opportunity right now on so many levels. Um, systemic changes don't just happen at the government level, although I completely echo what Claire said about how we might have to take a look at you know, taking things apart that we've taken for granted. Um, those systemic changes though, and those reforms to better help support those who have been systematically excluded or overlooked on getting the help they need, it starts here in conversations like this and has to spread through our agencies, our legislation, our teams, our homes, and our own minds. Um, I think one of the biggest things I've learned is to change my language and my way about thinking of discrimination a little bit, which is that, um, you know, we're not just not discriminatory. We are actively anti-discrimination. And I think that as, as a group here, we have a real opportunity um, to live by a core belief that there's always hope for a brighter future. And, you know, in the communities that VCB serves, it would certainly be a privilege if that brighter, more inclusive future started with us. And we hope that those changes would echo in our advocacy throughout our state and hopefully our nation. Okay, I think we probably have time for perhaps two questions of this great panel. Uh, so if somebody wants to raise their hand, Deb Kirk Lewis can recognize. That's Mitch Pomerantz. Good afternoon. Mitch, go for it. Jo Joe, I'm perhaps going to put you on the spot, but more and more of us within ACB nationally are beginning to believe, particularly since uh, implementation of WIOA, that the Older Individuals with Blindness Program is no longer a fit 
within RSA that it's become the uh, the illegal stepchild or or uh, really not wanted by by the folks in RSA. I'm wondering if you foresee a time when the OIB program or perhaps uh, uh, some offshoot thereof ends up uh, in the uh, Agency for Community Living or in, in some other federal program where it might receive more of the funding it deserves and more attention than it's currently getting. Yeah, I think, um, I think that is something that conversations already been started about and not hard to see it happen. I would suggest, though, that simply changing the address does not address the funding. And you can look at the other programs that, that made that same trip. Their funding hasn't changed. So you can change an address and get some different neighbors. But if you really want to talk about changing the services the population is getting, you have to go beyond the individual system and start looking at this more holistically and start looking at how do you leverage other systems and how do you bring the specialized expertise around blindness to bring all that together. Otherwise, um, you just have a different start point and the same end result. I don't know that anybody is necessarily thinking that's a good idea. Well, thank you. I I, I certainly understand that uh, that that's not the only thing that has to happen, but but uh, it's it's clearly it's clearly not working here for all the years we've been trying on the on the national level to to have funding increased. We've we've met a stone wall. We can't even get support within RSA under the past several commissioners. So some kind of change is definitely in order. And thank you for your uh, for your comments and for being uh, at the at the convention remotely today. You're welcome. Thank you, Mitch, for that excellent. Excellent question. Jordan? Okay. We have time for another one. Jordan? Okay. Jordan? There. Hey, Jeff. I just wanted to thank you for that last question that you posed to the panel. Uh, as we must at the California Council of the Blind, uh, push for systemic change in the black community too as well. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely correct. Thank you for the comment. You have quite a few more hands, Jeff, if you want to take, if you can take any more hands. Uh, we can take one more, maybe two. I'll see. All right. Uh, hi, uh, Steve Mendelson here. Thank you very much for a very interesting panel. Uh, sometimes I think that uh, the problem begins with the fact that my injustice is somebody else's cash flow. Uh, I think we all know that dramatic change is both inevitable and necessary. And I think that broadly speaking, most of us on this call, all of us on this call, uh, would not only favor the uh, better alignment of resources with needs and goals, but would also probably be in general agreement uh, as to what some of those changes should be. But when we deal with the larger political environment uh, and the larger economic environment in which those things have to be worked out, the question becomes one of almost as much of methodology and mechanism and how to develop the kinds of consensus and the kind of advocacy tools that we need to succeed. 
Is that a comment or a question? Both. Is that a question? Both. I think it's a question. I don't know if anybody has a <laughs> rejoinder to that uh, comment or not. I'll just say, this is Claire. I'll just say that, um, you know, I mean, what I heard from that question in part was like, you know, how do we really look at revenue and how do we look at the fact that a lot of our inequities come from um, who has money and who doesn't. Um, and I will say that I think there has, there has to be, and there is already starting to be a big conversation about how do we generate more revenue uh, as the state um, looks at this huge budget crisis. And, and I will say one thing. So I think there's a big conversation to be had about revenue and the importance of revenue. The other conversation though, I think is important sometimes is not to put the burden on us. Sometimes when programs are getting cut, uh, people will say, well, you know, that's too bad, but I mean, everybody has to sort of take their lumps or everybody sort of has to cut back in order. And I think it's really important for us to push back sometimes on that and to say, you know, everyone isn't taking their lumps equitably and um, we can do more for the communities we're serving, especially um, communities of color, low-income communities, um, rural communities. And so, you know, it's not always incumbent upon us to say, so therefore take from this other pot or, or generate revenue this other way, but to really push and say, these programs are too necessary and valuable for the communities they're serving, or these new investments need to get made. We need you as legislators to figure out how to get more money into the system to support those important programs. Okay, thank you. I think we're going to try for one more question. Okay, yeah. uh, Livy, you are unmuted. If you can unmute yourself. And if you uh, can't do that pretty quickly, uh, I see that um, Bob can. Okay, I'll take whoever's first. Sure. And so Bob Acosta and Livia, uh, there's, okay. I'm not muted. May I ask my question? You're good. Yeah. You can. You're Very on. quickly. I've been in the council 63 years. That's a long time. Forgive me if I missed your answer to this question. Not only am I blind and old, but hard of hearing, but we per we persevere. The question is, the lady, I think, who talked about the big tent, that she favored it. In the old days, the blind fought hard for specialized services. It sounds like we're trying to do some of that today. How do we get our share from the big tent when we're a minority, a small one within a minority? Thank you. Okay, who would like to take that on? Well, this is Sherry. I think I was the big tent lady. Um, <laughs> but I'll, anybody else can answer as well. And um, I think where we start, and it's a great question, Bob, by the way, is that we have to make sure we're, we're at the table. And I think when we look at the master plan on aging, um, low vision and blindness was not included in that first round of who was named to the panel. And it was some of us talking to our colleagues at Leading Age and um, Alzheimer's that pushed and pushed so we could finally get somebody at the table. And, you know, thankfully, Jeff um, got on to one of the subcommittees. But I think that's part of where we start getting the financial piece of the pie that, that we rightly deserve and need is we got to get in at these tables. And I think those of us, CCB, Vision Serve Alliance, I serve on that board and public policy committee. All of us need to join together and really get our public policy voice united and out there and then at these tables so we are heard, you know, and get and move the bar. Yeah. Thank you. This is Joe. I would just 
echo, echo, echo. You got to go upstream where policy is being set if you want to shift that funding downstream. If we're not at the tables that Sherry described, you're not going to be part of the conversation. You're not going to be part of the benefit. And they're not tables that are defined as blind, but they are definitely tables that impact the blind. Yes, they most certainly are. It, it definitely, I've been very fortunate to have been on one of the subcommittees and certainly uh, have done everything I can, um, you know, as part of that conversation. So I think we're going to have to, um, unfortunately, call it uh, a wrap for this um, committee. I, I just want to thank this panel, and I hope that you all have come to understand um, why I said at the beginning that they're a real stellar group, and because I think they are. So my thanks again um, to Shalina, Claire, Sherry, and Joe, and let's give them a virtual round of applause. Thank you. Uh, to thank you, all Jeff, of you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you again. This is an honor. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks, ECB. All right. Okay, Judy, are you in door prize mode before our next speaker, or? I think she's muted. I think so. <laughs> All right, then I guess we will move on to our next uh, panelist. And you're just going to have to wait for a little while for the next door prize. Our next panelist has actually um, been at CCB before. And um, Paul Spencer, who is works for Disability Rights California out of their San Diego office, is um, has a lot of expertise and passion on the voting rights issue. And he works very hard on issues uh, in that area. And so, again, he is coming before us to talk about some of the challenges we face in um, terms of our voting rights. So with that, I want to recognize Paul Spencer. Paul? Hi, everyone. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for the kind words. Um, it's nice to be back uh, speaking with you all. Uh, definitely different circumstances than the, the last time I got to speak at the conference, but um, here we are. And, and so uh, I definitely got a big bottle of water before this presentation because I only have 20 minutes, but I, there's a lot of material to cover, um, especially because I, I want to give an update on voting and COVID. But, you know, this was a pretty full presentation just talking of, I really wanted to talk about um, accessible voting systems and remote accessible vote by mail. But, but I really think we need to do um, a, a quick COVID update because, you know, it really has infiltrated everything we're doing now. And um, this November election is sort of unprecedented in the, the difficulty in administering this election. Um, but, but before we get to that, just like, as Jeff said, you know, we are Disability Rights California. We're the protection and advocacy system for people with disabilities in the state of California. And I'm in our voting rights practice group. So, you know, we, we really are looking to make elections accessible statewide. Um, and sort of since March, um, you know, we've, we've really been aggressively planning for November um, because of the pandemic. So just if I could kind of go to the end of the story here for November, um, there's got to be accessible in-person voting 
with accessible voting machines and remote accessible vote by mail. I mean, so that's that's the the big takeaway. But let me let me sort of unpack that for folks. Um, the Secretary of State met with voting rights groups, county election officials, and, and DRC took place and, and really did some very intense planning in March, like trying to come up with get, get a consensus on how you can do November in a way you know that um, is safe. Uh, but it's also accessible and that, you know, it still offers in-person voting. So um, there's there's a couple of bills working their way through the legislature on November, and the governor has put out two executive orders. It is really confusing how they're all overlapping and what's in effect and what's happening. But um, one way to think about it is that the executive orders are sort of the placeholder for county election officials until the bills pass. Um, Yesterday, the bill on sending all voters a vote by mail uh, ballot passed, which is great. Um, uh, but there's still a bill pending on the requirements for in-person voting for November. Um, so that will likely pass, but it's probably not going to happen until July or August. So in the meantime, there is an executive order out for county election officials clarifying what they should be doing for November. So here it is in a nutshell. Um, counties can run, they have the option, they can just run a traditional election, they can send everyone a vote by mail ballot, and they can also have what are called consolidated polling places. So for every 10,000 voters, they can have one large polling place. Right now, the, the standard rule is, you know, you have basically a polling place for every precinct of a thousand voters. So these consolidated polling places are going to be open for four days. So starting on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of election day. The thought is that that will have enough capacity that there shouldn't be crowding and it should guarantee good access to accessible voting services. In particular, the legislation, you know, one thing we've, we've really been advocating for is that these consolidated polling places would have three accessible voting machines. So that will likely be in place. Unfortunately, the executive order right now doesn't say that, but the legislation does. So we are pretty confident that there's going to be three accessible voting machines there. That's pretty similar to if anybody lives in a Voters' Choice Act county that does vote centers. Vote centers are required to also have three accessible voting machines minimum. So, so that that's good. There are some good accessibility protections um, built into the legislation that's coming. Um, if I could go back to sending everyone a vote by mail ballot, so one way, even if you are a person with a disability that, that can't use vote by mail because you, you can't vote privately and independently, um, I, I still think it's good, you know, if, for example, if you're an in-person voter, because that will re hopefully reduce the amount of people that are coming to vote in person um, on, in November. So that, that's one way to look at it. The other thing is remote accessible vote by mail is still available. Um, it's, it's been a requirement as of this year. And we'll go into a little more detail there, but one thing for November is the bill that the governor signed yesterday um, allows county election officials to let, to, that all voters can use remote accessible vote by mail for November. So I, I know there might be some concern if you're a remote accessible vote by mail user that that would, um, you know, that, that might overwhelm the system or that it might cause delays. So this was a concern DRC had in the planning phase, and, and we've been assured by the election equipment vendors and county election officials that they have the capacity for an increased demand for remote accessible vote by mail. 
there's also some practical things about I'm, we're not really, we're, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, people without disabilities that, that don't need to use remote accessible vote by mail that are trying to save time or something. Practically, we're not so worried about that because a lot of those folks will be getting vote by mail ballots in the mail. And, and as some of you know, if you've used remote accessible vote by mail, it's pretty darn good, but it can be um, a bit, a bit um, awkward to use, especially if you're someone that's not used to using um, AT. So that, that could be one thing. And maybe I should take a step back just in case if anyone doesn't know what remote accessible vote by mail is. It's, um, it's a requirement in California and not really too many other states that um, it, it, it allows for a way for accessible vote by mail. So voters can receive the ballot electronically, fill it out on their home computer, and then print and mail it back in. Um, it's important. One thing is not internet voting because you're not actually transmitting the vote back over electronically. And the other thing about it too is it does involve printing something out and mailing it back in, which is admittedly less than accessible. So it's not perfect, but it is an option allowing some people with disabilities to be able to cast a private and independent ballot without having to go in person to a location. But that does not change the requirements that there still are accessible voting machines required for everyone. Um, so that is COVID-19 in a nutshell. The, the other thing is, is I, I caught in the last, some of the questions we were talking about the budget in California. Everyone, I have to tell you, it's, it's looking really bad. You know, there's, there's not a lot of money for anything. Um, and, you know, and, and one thing that there's, there's not really a whole lot of funding coming for is education and outreach. Um, for, to voters about November. I mean, there are huge changes coming for November for the election, and there's really not a whole lot of money for doing education and outreach. So it's one thing just for folks on the call, especially if you work for a nonprofit, is like you're, you know, my nonprofit, for example, we're really gearing up to try to do as much voter education outreach as we can because there's not really going to be a whole lot of state funding reaching out to voters. So there, there is some money coming, but it's not a lot. Um, and one other thing that, that should should be nice is that um, um, people, oh, okay, good. Somebody muted their mic. That's good. Um, so the one nice thing is, you know, people are getting the vote by mail ballot, but, you know, for folks that are in a Voters Choice Act county, which there's 15 counties that did it in March, um, in those counties, all voters get a vote by mail ballot automatically in the mail. And then there are vote centers, which there's a, there's one vote center for every 10,000 voters, and there's also some other early voting options. Um, you know, most people still voted. Well, most people actually return, use those vote by mail ballots, but still quite a few people still show up on election day. So, I mean, that's another message for folks, especially if you're a person with a disability that wants to use an accessible voting machine. You might want to go vote on those early days to avoid the crowd. That, that's another good thing to think about. Um, but so now I want to transition. Uh, to kind of just talking about some voting equipment and some other things going on in the state. So uh, one exciting thing that's, that's, that's happened is all the counties in California now have new accessible voting machines, relatively new. So uh, in 2019, uh, in the beginning of 2019, the, the California Secretary of State um, required all counties, that they, they need to have accessible voting machines that that are certified to the most recent standards, which are from 2014. 
So basically what that meant was is only about 20 counties had, you know, quote unquote modern equipment, like newer accessible voting machines. So there are about 30 counties that had really old stuff. And, you know, I, I talked to somebody on the call about some of that equipment in the past and it's, um, you know, it, it wasn't good. It was old. I mean, it was stuff that was bought, you know, after the Help America Vote Act passed. So it was um, less than accessible in large part because it was, you know, it was getting old. It was error prone and poll workers were struggling to fix it. So, you know, the new equipment's a lot better and, and I, I think it's easier to use. And also it's just less buggy, which is great. Um, you know, there's there's only a handful of systems in, that, that are in, in use. Um, you know, we, we kind of closely got to see a lot of them in action, especially as counties were going through the um, decision process for, for which system to buy. So, you know, as far as DRC, you know, we try to bring uh, people with different types of disabilities to these meetings and, and offer feedback and input. And I know some of you have given feedback to the Secretary of State themselves when they are um, vetting this equipment. Um, so, you know, most counties sort of have the standard voting equipment. One thing that was sort of different uh, in March is that uh, LA County has been designing their own voting equipment over the last couple of years and March was the first election that it, it went into effect. So one thing about LA, if you, it's hard to even remember things that happened before the pandemic, but um, in, in the early March, you know, during the primary, LA had a lot of problems in their election. There were really long lines. Um, so it was bad. Uh, it, it's, uh, people were waiting in really long lines. You know, we didn't get any um, complaints from people with disabilities, but it, there's no doubt there is a three hour line, like that's gonna prevent people from voting at those locations. So the one issue I think I want to point about about LA's meltdown is that the problems in LA were due to the voter check-in process, not, and, and there really weren't any complaints about the accessible voting machine that people were voting on not working. That was generally well received. So, um, you know, if you are an LA voter and, and you're concerned that the accessible voting equipment is good, um, what the problem was, was that the voter check-in process, there was a delay, you know, when the electronic poll books they were using, when they were trying to uh, log into the state system. There's still a little dispute about, you know, what exactly was causing that problem, but LA um, has done their own really detailed findings about what caused the meltdown in March and an independent report just came out now. So the idea is that that should be fixed. The other thing that LA is doing, like all the other counties is there, LA is actually gonna send everyone a vote by mail ballot. Kind of a weird thing about the Voters' Choice Act is the other 14 counties had to send everyone a vote by mail ballot. LA for the first four years didn't have to send everyone a vote by mail ballot, which, you know, despite some voting rights advocates pointing out that might not be such a good idea, that was part of the problem with March is that they had a lot more people than they expected show up on election day to vote. And those people didn't have the option of going home and filling out their vote by mail ballot. So that's one nice thing for November, you know, especially if, you know, the, the pandemic is worse or something, it, people do have that backup vote by mail ballot at home, which will hopefully reduce crowding. So, um, Another thing I want to talk about is e-poll books. Um, so, you know, the traditional poll book you check in is on paper. You know, the, the poll worker looks you up, looks up your name. You know, they've got the ruler they're scrolling down. They find your name and your address and you sign the poll book. Most counties are still using those traditional paper poll books. Um, 
So the 15 VCA counties have to do electronic poll books to check folks in. Um, and another six have the equipment, and I'm not sure yet if they're going to use it for November. One thing about the counties doing the consolidated polling locations in November, counties do that, is they're either going to have to have all, this is for folks too that aren't using the accessible voting system. The one nice thing about the accessible voting system is that that thing has all the ballot types on it. But this is just something to think about from an election administration perspective. If you're you know, a more rural county that's used to just having one precinct with, with a handful of ballot types, now you might end up having, you know, you've got 10 precincts with language requirements. It's just a lot of paper for for the election officials, just some another headache they have. So e-poll books can be a way to check people in. And then there's some ballot on demand services that can print out paper ballots for people that aren't using the accessible systems. So the e-poll e books are coming. Um, and, you know, DRC is always interested in feedback for how um, folks are interacting with them. Um, I, I want to end with remote accessible, but, but I just want to throw in something real quick. Um, so kind of changing the subject here a bit, but um, the Department of Motor Vehicles has accessible computers now. And, and the last time I'd, I'd spoken at CCB, they were relatively new um, because as you know, you, you have to register to vote at the DMV and the DMV didn't have any you know accessible way for a person with a disability, especially someone who's blind or low vision to you know, independently fill out the paperwork. And part of that's a privacy thing. Like, you know, you're, you're checking your political party. You don't want to have to tell that to the DMV field technician out loud in a, in a crowded place. So you know, we really pushed the DMV to try to improve their privacy. So they did put accessible computers into every field office in the state. And I think it's like 130 something. So it's a, it's a lot. The accessible computers look pretty good. Um, so it's it's something if you are going for a DMV transaction is to ask to use the accessible computer. You know, that the DMV signage is pretty bad. The customer services, everyone knows that the DMV is, you know, uh, how do we put this nice? It's often very difficult to get, sometimes difficult to get decent customer service at a DMV and they, their training for working with customers with disabilities is spotty. So there, there have been some improvements, but I, but I just want to flag for everyone that there is an accessible computer there. And I encourage you to, to, to use it um, next time you have a, a DMV transaction. Um, so let's um, move on to uh, remote accessible vote by mail. You know, I talked a little bit about what it was, but um, also, you know, this March was the first time it was required statewide. So that was an assembly bill last year from uh, assembly member Lowe. Um, and you know, it, it made remote accessible vote by mail required for the whole state. So before that remote accessible vote by mail was only required in the Voters Choice Act counties. So in 2018, that was just five counties. Um, and, you know, and one of those was San Mateo, which I, I think some folks on the call are familiar with. San Mateo, there were some lawsuits and San Mateo was an early adopter of um, remote accessible vote by mail, which is great. They also are a Voters Choice Act County, but it was nice to see it spread to every county in the state. So, you know, one thing we're thinking about with remote accessible vote by mail now is that it's required is that general voter awareness of this option is really low. So, you know, we want education and outreach to be improved, but the other thing is like just the basic stuff is county elections offices, like they need to have it on their website. There are a handful that, that don't even mention it on their website. So they need to describe it on their website. One nice thing about the 
the legislation that just passed this, and maybe it's hard to say if it's a silver lining or not, but because remote accessible vote by mail is now required um, everywhere, uh, or they're required to let all voters use it, is that counties are gonna have to update their website information. So it might be a nice little tool to try to get them to update their information in general. That's kind of one thing that's often missing on county elections websites is decent information about the accessible voting options. And, and I'm making the distinction here, you know, these websites should also be accessible themselves, but you know, we, we don't just want them to be accessible themselves. We also want the websites to be useful to people with disabilities and provide useful information. And, you know, part of what brought that point home for me is, you know, we, sometimes we get hotline calls, you know, from a, a person who's blind, you know, asking if there was an accessible voting system, it's gonna be at this polling location. And, you know, of course there's gonna be one that's required, but you know when you go on that county elections website it doesn't say anything about it so but like we would like you know just like good customer service answering questions for people with disabilities and to have that stuff there so you know we're looking for that we're also working on i mean this is drc like we're pushing the state is going to require even though i said there's very little funding for education and outreach the state is going to require counties to do right now in, in the bills they're thinking about you know, requiring outreach for voters in certain languages. So um, we're all trying to add in that they're going to do outreach for remote accessible vote by mail. So we're, we're trying to get those messages in there and trying to get this this point brought to as many voters with disabilities as possible. Um, so that's kind of where we are for November. Um, things are pretty darn stressful, but you know we do have some good stuff going on in California. Just to summarize. You know, we're going to send everyone a, a, a vote by mail ballot, so that should help reduce the amount of people voting on election day. Um, so that's good for people with disabilities, especially if you want to have an accessible voting experience. Um, and remote accessible vote by mail is required statewide, which is great. Um, and uh, so that's where we are for November. The one thing I would encourage folks to do before we transition into questions is you do likely want to double check your voter registration status and you can do it online on the California Secretary of State's website. Um, their website is accessible, it should be. Um, and there's a voter registration tool there. So you can look yourself up there. And the reason you would, even if you know you're registered to vote, you're a consistent voter, you might want to double check, especially if you're not a permanent vote by mail voter, that your address is correct. So that might be for someone, especially folks that are blind or low vision that typically go vote in person and use an accessible voting machine, you know, you might um, not have checked your address as closely in the past as, as someone that is a permanent vote by mail voter. So you, you probably want to log in and just double check that they have the right address for you because that thing's going to come to you in the mail. And if you are someone that wants to go vote in person, you know, it's What's going to be easiest is if you just bring that unfilled out vote by mail ballot and envelope with you to surrender at the location. It'll make the paperwork the easiest. So that's my advice for, for folks on the call, especially if you're someone who is definitely going to go vote in person to use an accessible voting machine, is to make sure that you actually get that paper ballot in the mail on time so that it doesn't cause a headache for you when you go to check in to vote and they say, hey, we sent you a vote by mail ballot. You know, why didn't you use it? <laughs> well, if you have it with you and say, I'm returning it because I want to use the accessible voting machine, that's a lot easier than having to wait for them to look you up to see if you did vote the vote by mail ballot or not. Um, so that's sort of in my like a quick 
guide for for surviving November's election is 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 what I what I would recommend. Um, and and as always, you know, uh, DRC, you know, we run an election day hotline. For every reason you get stuck, especially on election day, like the accessible equipment's not working, something's going on. You know, give us a call on our hotline. We're we're there. It's going to be answered right away, and we'll do our best to try to help you resolve the problem. So, so our hotline is there. Um, and also, you know, you, you're welcome to reach out to DRC if there's other access, accessibility concerns, especially with equipment, or, or if you have questions, or if you're interested in getting um, a training done for, for your nonprofit or, or your group or, or anything. But um, I'm, I'm kind of at the end of the presentation. I'd like to see if there's any questions. And we only have okay. about minutes left. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm going to take the prerogative and ask the first one. Okay. Um, and I want to go past November and... You know, there are like maybe two, I think, two states that do have, and maybe a, maybe one or two more, um, fully accessible remote voting, whereby you can actually submit the ballot online as opposed to having to print it out. And there are a couple more states that are currently either in litigation or in advocacy to get that particular right. Um, what do you think is the best strategy um, I'm, you know, there's a lot of us who would really prefer, even though this isn't a horrible system, and a lot of states have the same system we do where you have to print it, send it back, we'd still love to have a system whereby you could just, you know, hit enter and send that baby back. You know, Jeff, that, that does seem, it's, it's, it's definitely more accessible, it's just easier, but that, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is for, you know, I mean, you have to the obstacle to that is folks that are concerned about election security. And, and, and I don't mean the, the types that are yelling that vote by mail is going to cause fraud. I, I mean that they're like computer science experts are concerned that, you know, submitting the vote back electronically isn't secure. So those concerns, I think, often are kind of what, you know, trip up the Secretary of State and the legislature about the, the electronic return. That, that, Maybe, Jeff, I, I'm just sort of thinking out loud here is one thing is, you know, there's not, with the exception of this November, there's not tons of people that are using remote accessible vote by mail. You know, it, it's only used, it's not, I think even when it's widely known, it still won't be incredibly widely used. And, and that might be one argument you can make that it's not a security concern because it's it's not a substantial amount of votes that, that could allegedly be tampered with. But Jeff, I, I'm still not really sure, you know, what the strategy would be to get remote accessible vote by mail change to have an electronic um, return. I, I will say, you know, there were some, it was, the idea was talked around yeah. um, as folks were trying to plan for November. And, and you know, it did run into, you know, election security concerns. And, you know, there are computer scientist types that make, you know, pretty compelling arguments why they don't think it's a good idea. Okay. Uh, Other so, questions? Sheila? Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, Sheila Gunn Cushman from Oakland. I am extremely deeply concerned about remote, remote, <clears throat> accessible vote by mail. Anything that requires print is not accessible to a totally blind person, period. Not only that, from what I understand, you have to sign the envelope. And I, I would be willing to bet a favorite beverage at whatever restaurant to whoever that we that we will receive this and it won't be labeled in any in any 
tactile way or any way that I will know independently that it is my ballot. And frankly, my mailbox is not secure. I don't want a ballot. I don't want a print ballot at all. I would like to stop it. And I don't feel like we were I don't feel like we were considered. And I'm very disappointed in the blindness community because I feel like I know that I've been saying this for years, at least since 2017. And um, here we are still. And I'm very concerned. I like I'll vote early. I'll do whatever I have to do, but I have to physically go. I want an accessible vote by mail system that I don't have to go in for. But if it requires print because other people are paranoid, I I don't respect that. And I'm sorry if that is not cool to people, but this is, I'm really angry about it and have been for years. No, and, and Sheila, I, I, I think it, it's a, it's a very valid criticism. So it, it's, it's not totally accessible or, or, or really ideal, but it's, it's, it's somewhat of the way there. I, just to address one of your concerns is that the envelope should have holes punched out by the signature line. Um, it, it should have that, um, which, which is something to help. But Sheila, I, also want to buy, I think you offered to buy me a beer next time I see you. <laughs> if, you can get me, if you can get me an accessible vote by mail or, or prove that, that I can do this independently without, because I don't even own a printer. Can we go on to the next question, please? Yeah, it should, Sorry, Sheila. We need to move on. Sheila. Well, hang on. What he was trying to say was, Sheila, it should, in every county, it should work this way that there should be some holes between which you are yeah. supposed to sign the ballot return envelope. Now, that doesn't mean you won't send back a blank piece of paper, as we know, but that's one minor point that that, is, that has that they have done something about. And, and I also just want to add real quick before we go to the next question is that, you know, if, for example, your signature didn't match or you, you didn't get it lined up exactly right, you know, the county does need to contact you um, to, to try to fix your signature. So, you know, and they will have your contact information, but hopefully all of you, especially if you update your voter registration information. But let's do the next question because we've only got a couple minutes. That is me, Linda. Um, okay, um, two quick questions. One, my signature never looks the same way twice. It's very, I never learned cursive only to write my name. So that's mm -hmm. a concern, but it hasn't caught up with me yet. The other one, more importantly, is um, I get lots of scary emails every day from political action committees telling me that my local post office is going to close soon and what's going to happen with post offices vis-a-vis -vis elections. And I'm wondering if you guys are looking at that at all. Uh, thanks. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Linda. Linda. Thank you, Linda. So the 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 Postal Service having trouble is definitely one of those really scary scenarios. I, I think it's pretty low probability that they won't be able to handle the vote by mail volume, but it it is an issue. So, I, Linda, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that the post office will be able to handle the volume. And, and part of the reason I say it, in, at least just in California, is the Secretary of State, when they had a working group trying to plan for November, one person that did participate is the Postal Service representative that handles California. And they did seem confident that they would be able to handle the increased mail volume um, for November. 
so that that was somewhat reassuring, but I but definitely I see the national news articles too about the the postal service's dire um, finances, which, which is scary. But I I would you know maybe try to you know what I do with the inbox from the the scary emails I get from political groups. You know I um, yeah they, that is it is scary when you get those. So I mean my advice would be you know is you definitely um, you know, personally, like I like to vote on election day, but, but really, you, you might really want to try to vote earlier and, and try to submit your, your ballot as soon as you can, just because there there might be some processing delays. Um, oh, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I just wondered if there were any uh, sort of backup plan, if if uh, with the Secretary of State, are they going to send out the National Guard to collect their votes or what have you? I'm sure none of that is happening, but um, thank you. I do feel reassured by what we you said. You do have a backup plan, and part of that is, is California is really dedicated to making sure that in-person voting is available as a backup in case people don't get their vote by mail ballots. And that's part of the reason we advocated so hard for that, you know, oftentimes people, especially people with disabilities, you, know, you might not have, some might be difficult with your mail access. So that's why we still want to make sure the in-person locations are available. Okay. So that is in some ways our backup is that we are going to have a, an adequate amount of in-person voting available. And we, we also have remote accessible vote by mail. You know, for example, if you were intending to use your vote by mail ballot and you got in some kind of jam, you could contact your county elections office and they could let you use remote accessible vote by mail. Yeah, I do do that. Well, thank you for the answer. That was that was good. Thanks. Okay, I believe that our time is about up, and so I'll turn it over to Judy. Do you want to do a door prize, Judy? Or? You betcha. Okay. You betcha. Thank you so much, Paul. It was wonderful you. your presentation. I appreciate you having me. Lisa, Lisa. I'm here. Go for it, girl. The lucky number is 42, which is Debbie Obregon. Okay. Debbie For those who have read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they'll know that Debbie Obregon is obviously the answer to the universe. Absolutely. Let's do one more, Lisa. Okay. The number is 125 which is Megan Downey. Okay. And uh, we'll be getting in touch with everyone. So if you didn't hear your name and if we didn't quite say it right, they've got a spreadsheet with all this information. It's really cool. Okay, Jeff, if you'd like to go ahead and introduce our okay. next presenter. So I'm going to introduce uh, for my last uh, chore of the day, um, I'm going to introduce um, Sean Batelier. We've probably worked with disability rights advocates for, well, I, I need Jean Lozano on here to tell me, but I would estimate at least 25 years on a whole host of cases. Um, DRA's uh, main office is in Berkeley. And um, Sean uh, was involved in one of our cases in the state parks, I have to tell you. Sean, one of the worst days of my life was being subpoenaed by the state of California in that case. Um, they wanted me to admit that, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know, that I sold igloos to Eskimos or whatever they wanted. Anyway, it was, it was not a pleasant experience. Uh -huh. um, so um, I want to introduce to you without uh, further uh, embellishment, 
um, Sean Battelier to give us an update on some of the cases that are currently percolating. Sean? Well, uh, first, uh, thank you for uh, standing up to the state parks on, on behalf of a, a bunch of visually impaired folks. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we appreciate your advocacy. Um, so my name is Sean. I've been uh, a staff attorney with DRA for about five years. And uh, <clears throat> as Jeff mentioned, uh, DRA has been litigating on behalf of folks with disabilities for about 25 years now, uh, all across the country. Um, and we've done several cases over that period with, with CCB or with ACB. Um, I'm gonna talk about some of those today. And uh, I, I just, I have to give uh, two caveats before I start talking. Uh, the first one is that a lot of the cases that I'm gonna talk about today are not ones that I'm involved with personally. So I'm, I'm familiar enough with them to sort of describe them in broad strokes and to answer basic questions. But if you have any really detailed questions, I'll probably have to uh, put you in touch with one of the attorneys on our team who's actually doing the case to follow up with you. Uh, and then the second caveat is that uh, although I am an attorney, I get a little bit nervous when I'm giving public presentations. So if I talk too fast or you need me to repeat anything, uh, just let me know. I'll try to slow down. Um, so the first, the first case, and I guess the first group of cases that I want to talk about, uh, like DRC and like Paul, we're, we're very concerned with voting. And that's, that's one of the things we're really trying to focus on right now. Um, and particularly making sure that, you know, folks who need an accessible ballot don't have to choose between, you know, their health and their ability to vote privately and independently. Uh, so just last month, we filed a case in New York against the New York Board of Elections um, on behalf of ACB, uh, NFB, and a, a variety of other groups and individuals. And the, the goal of that case, the purpose of that case was to ensure that, you know, folks with visual disabilities or motor disabilities that make it hard or impossible to fill out a paper absentee ballot form could still vote privately and independently. Um, and when we filed that case, we also moved for a temporary restraining order, uh, essentially asking the board to put an accessible ballot in place in time for the June 23rd primary. And we pretty much immediately, um, by, by June 2nd, we reached an agreement with the board, to, at least for that piece. Um, and I, I'll say before I describe the agreement, I think it does have some of the features that, that, that Sheila raised concerns about just a moment ago. Um, but basically the contours of that are, you know, that the, the board has to provide a screen reader, reader compatible PDF ballot to anyone who requests one along with accessible instructions. Um, there needs to be a, and, and then they will both mail and make available online um, a prepaid ballot envelope and an oath envelope. And then the way that we're dealing with the signature in that case is that you can sign anywhere on the back of the oath envelope uh, to validate your ballot. Um, I, I completely recognize that that's probably an imperfect solution. It was sort of the best that, you know, us and our, our plaintiffs in that case could come up with, uh, given the, the sort of short time frame, you know, trying to get people to vote in, in time for a primary that was only weeks away. Um, 
that case is still ongoing. Um, and we're really, we're trying to figure out better procedures that we can put in place for future elections, including the election in November. Uh, we're also looking at the issue of accessible voting all around the country. Um, so we've, we've been receiving inquiries and complaints from a number of individuals and ACB state affiliates. And to my knowledge, there are things in the works in various states, most of them, I think, in the Southeast. But if, you know, anyone in this room has had issues, heard of issues, has concerns. Uh, I know I know California is pretty well covered, uh, but we're happy to hear about any problems that folks experience or know about um, elsewhere. Um, before I move on to other cases, does anyone have questions about that area, about voting? Yes, you do have some uh, questions. Um, uh, Jordan? There you go. I, um, is there a way to sign up for remote accessible vote by mail? You know, in, in California, I'm not sure. That might be a Paul question if, uh, if Paul's still on the line. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks, Sean. So just uh, for signing up for remote accessible vote by mail, you can call your county elections office. You can return a postcard they sent you if, if they send you a card, if you're interested, which should happen. Um, and then on some counties, you can do it through their website electronically. But um, my my advice would be probably to call your county elections that they're their line and, and ask to use remote accessible vote by mail would, would be, I think would probably be the best suggestion. They can also provide you more advice for how our ABBM works in their county. And I say that because regrettably, a lot of counties don't have great information on their website for about remote accessible vote by mail. But um, but yeah, you, that, that's what I would recommend is, is probably calling your county is, is probably the most effective way to do it. Regina Marie? to unmute. you go. Okay, I think I found the unmute button. You I'm did. Sorry. <laughs> so, sorry. Get, Paul, hang on. Paul, could you give DRC's number out in case Jordan needs a little more assistance navigating the system of applying for remote, accessible remote voting? I, I definitely will. Uh, it embarrassing, Jeff. I can't remember my own phone number for our hotline. So if you give me just a second, I'll get it and I'll I'll, I'll chime back. Okay, right that would be good. Okay, sorry. Um, what, maybe one more question on voting, and then we need to give time to move on. Sure, sure. Okay, my question was: Has any discussion been uh, breached about using Ira or an application like that? It's an app that helps people. Um, if they need something verified, I was thinking if you print out your ballot and you wanted to have it verified that perhaps a partnership would with the county could enable something like that to happen. I, I hope that was clear, the question. It, so that it would kind of bridge that gap of print for some people. 
Yeah, no, that is, that is clear. I think that's a great idea. And I'll, I'll take it back to the team that's working on that case. And I'll also make sure that that's something that folks are considering as we, you know, bring and work on other cases around the country. I, th I think that's a really interesting idea that's at least worth exploring. There are no more questions. Okay. Okay. So maybe, okay. I need the hotline number real quick. Uh, this is Paul again. Sorry. Yes. Thanks, Paul. So our, our hotline is uh, 1 888 569 7955. And if somebody could type that in the chat for me, I'm not actually able to type into the chat. Oh, yes, because so, the chat's not on. Oh, it's not on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I did see a, I did somehow yeah. somebody got a chat into yeah. the chat. It's somebody put <laughs> something in the question box, but we're not actually oh, using. Question. Oh, okay. Yeah. So again, the number is 888-569-7955. And also the, the hotline runs year round. So you can call it whenever you have uh, a voting question. It's so that, that's the hotline. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Okay. So I, I'll, I'm going to run through some of the other stuff we're working on. So we also have a couple of other, uh, I guess, COVID-related investigations uh, related to folks who are blind or have low vision. Um, one has to do with delivery services and the accessibility of delivery services. Uh, so like DoorDash, Caviar, GrubHub, things like this. Um, and any issues regarding uh, either the accessibility of the mobile application or the accessibility of uh, the web app to screen reader technology. So this is something, you know, we're, we're just sort of in the early stages of looking into, but if, you know, anyone, again, anyone on this call or anyone that you hear of has issues with this sort of thing, um, I will, Jeff, uh, Jeff, is it easier for me to give my email now orally or would, would you just send it to um, participants after the fact? What's the best way to get my contact information out? Um, if anybody wants it, well, go ahead and give it. And then if anybody wants it, I also have it. So I can also okay. get it to anybody that wants it. Okay. So if anyone, for, for anything that I discussed today, if you want to follow up, my email is, is rather long, but it's S-B-E-T-O-U-L-I-E-R-E uh, -E -E at uh, DRALegal.org. And then, yeah, Jeff, Jeff uh, has my email. We've corresponded. Many times. <laughs> so you can always go through Jeff as well. Um, so that, so that's one thing we're looking into is accessibility of delivery services. And then the other thing we've been looking into in relation to COVID is distance learning and the accessibility of uh, these various platforms that colleges are using um, and also access to accessible course materials. Because what we've been hearing from, from a lot of folks is that they're having problems with that and that they're essentially being denied equal access to their education as a result. Uh, so again, if that's something that you've experienced or you hear anybody else uh, having issues with that, please reach out to us and let us know. Um, another issue not necessarily related to current events, but something we've been doing recently, we filed a case in New York State on behalf of um, an individual with low vision. And this had to do with uh, it was a state office of mental health policy disqualifying anyone with less than 2040 vision from uh, certain positions. This particular position was a mental health therapy aid. Um, and this is something we, so that th this particular person uh, was given a job offer and then had it rescinded because his vision was lower, it was 2060, but he'd done similar work for years. He was super well qualified. He absolutely quit on the job. 
and it was just sort of arbitrarily uh, taken from him after he'd, after he'd already been given an offer. Um, this is definitely an area that we want to do more work in. So again, if you hear of any, but any similar sort of vision-related qualifications that aren't really necessary or related to the job at issue, uh, definitely reach out, let us know. Um, we have a couple of other investigations and, and cases that are ongoing that I just want to sort of run through. Um, so we've done a lot of work over the years in the area of uh, web accessibility. Uh, we, we've had cases against Netflix and Hulu, um, just trying to make sure that, you know, folks with visual impairments have the same access to entertainment as anyone else. We currently have one of these going on with HBO regarding the lack of audio description and lack of screen reader accessibility for various HBO streaming services, including HBO Max. That one is in settlement talks, and I can't share too much about what's going on there, but I, it, we're making progress, and we'll hopefully have something to announce there soon. Um, we also have an investigation about ticket sales for the Golden One Center in Sacramento, which is this uh, sports and entertainment venue. Um, the sales for that are happening through Ticketmaster and what we've heard from various folks and maybe someone on the line can tell me if they've had similar experiences, but that various portions of the Ticketmaster website aren't screen reader accessible. So it is very difficult to purchase tickets uh, via the web remotely. Um, and then the last sort of Thing in that ongoing uh, investigation bucket is uh, we have this San Jose Sharks case regarding uh, the accessibility of the app that the San Jose Sharks NHL team uses to uh, do ticket sales and various other things. Um, that one's been in negotiation for, I think, about a year. Um, we ultimately weren't able to reach a, a negotiated resolution, so we're back in the litigation world. If you know of anybody who has a Sharks fan or has attended uh, events at the SAP Center in San Jose um, and had issues with, with this, this application and the inaccessibility of this application, uh, again, please let us know. Um, and then the last two things that I wanted to discuss are, are sort of longstanding cases that we've had with CCB. Um, the first one is the one that Jeff alluded to, which is the, the Tucker versus California State Parks case. This was filed way back in 1998 90, or 99. Um, it was settled in 2005. And at the time, it was the first case in the country that had ever used or tried to use the ADA and other access laws to make state parks accessible. Um, there's been a lot of progress on that front since we settled in 2005. So for example, I believe about 94% of the most used parks are now significantly more accessible than they were, um, meaning that they have uh, accessible trails with detectable warnings, at least some accessible trails with detectable warnings. They have accessible signs and they have all sorts of other features to make them more usable for folks with visual impairments and mobility impairments. Um, 
However, that, that being said, there's also still a lot, a lot left to do. Um, we recently negotiated some changes to the settlement uh, that, that essentially, in short, uh, changed the schedule by which things are going to happen. So under, that, under those changes, which still have to be finalized and approved by the court, we'll basically get to the end of the settlement by 2038, meaning that all of the things that uh, California State Parks said that they were going to do will be done by then. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of big update number one on that litigation. And then the other update, which is a smaller thing, is that we recently uh, reached agreement to uh, revisions to the complaint policy so that you can make uh, accessible complaints much more easily. Instead of having to use this uh, download and print this form, you can now just send a complaint via email or via a, a web form that, that will be on their website. Um, and then the very last thing that I wanted to discuss, I'm sorry, I've been just talking a bunch. Um, the very last thing uh, that's a CCB case is this case called Hinkle versus Kent. Um, and that has to do with the California Department of Healthcare Services failure to provide Medi-Cal notices in accessible formats, um, which basically means that, you know, if you need a notice in Braille or, you know, some other a large print or some other format that you can actually use, you may not get it at all, or you may wait months and months to get it and risk losing your, your Medi-Cal benefits, which particularly in this time of, you know, COVID can be a, an especially scary and troubling thing. Um, so that's basically the rundown. And uh, I guess at this point, I'm happy to take questions or comments. And I'm also happy, you know, if there's anything else that folks are hearing about and experiencing that you think we should be looking into, uh, that we aren't looking into, I'm happy to hear that too. Okay, do we have any hands? Uh, Margie. Okay, Margie. Hi, I'm Margie Donovan, member of Capital Chapter. Thank you um, very much for your presentation. Worked with your what? Involved in a couple of the litigation. I have, sorry, my computer's talking. Um, <laughs> no worries. I have a um, couple of questions in one point. Sure. Uh, things newly discovered, such as USPS. Their app on the computer nor on the phone is not all accessible for reading incoming mail. I recently learned that there's an app called Pinter that is for um, individuals to manage their own swimming pools, not at all accessible. Um, so I guess my question is, at what point do you guys decide to take a case or at what point does one introduce a case to you? That's my first question. So, you know, I, I think there's not, there's not one answer to that. I think it's always, it's always sort of an analysis of like, is there a legal hook here? Um, you know, is there, is there actually something that we can do? So for instance, for the swimming pool thing, I think just because of the way that the, that the ADA and analogous state laws work, there might not be a hook there. The USPS one, that's an interesting thing. And that's something that I'd really like to talk to you more about. Um, but there's, there's not sort of like one formula for, you know, this is a case that we take and this is a case that we don't. I'm happy to hear about anything though. And we'll, we'll, look, into, we'll look into anything that folks care to bring our way. 
Thank you. And the other question has slipped my mind, so it wasn't important enough. <laughs> okay, thanks, Margie. So, Margie, yes. can, um, can you connect with Jeff and uh, send me a little follow-up about the USPS issue? Um, I, I, sure, I can do that Stewart's email. I'm very involved with you guys, but I can get your specific email. Thank you. Okay, yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Alice, Alice is next. I, um, yes, my name is Alice Turner. Thank you again. I have just one quick question. It's more of a broad to see if it's on your, your horizon. Uh, one of the things that will be happening in the future will be virtual conferences. And a part of that is how it is that people register. So whether it is being held by a company or whether it's being held by an outside event planner. Mm -hmm. So wondering if that is on your horizon for the accessibility for how it is that individuals will be registering for virtual events. Thank you. It's, it's not something that's been brought up to us yet. Are you just, uh, so is it just um, like ticket sales? Is that kind of what you mean when you're talking yeah. about re registration? Yes. So it could be ticket sales, but it, it can also be registering for the events and how it is that that inf information gets captured. Okay. Um, so I think virtual conferences will be the way of the future. There are a couple of companies that are key players in that platform, and they are all keenly aware of the fact that anytime that you do something virtually um, for a big you know, audience, that it, if it's not working, <laughs> there will be some problems for them as a corporation. Um, so I just didn't know whether you had that on your horizon or not. Yeah, it's not an issue that's been brought to us. It is something that I think we'd be interested in. If it, so I think if you experience, you know, trying to sign up for something and not being able to access the registration form, not being able to buy a ticket, anything like that, um, definitely let us know. Okay, thank you. Steve? Hi, Steve Bauer, Greater LA Chapter. Um, my question is about COVID-19 testing. You were talking about COVID-19 earlier, and mm -hmm. here in LA County, the majority of it is done through drive-through sites, which uh, paratransit will not transport you to, Lyft and Uber won't. Uh, I had an insurance uh, situation. My insurance company would not cover um, anything that wasn't a drive-through. We had to do some finarking around. I'm not even sure who you would go after, if it, the insurance companies or who you would, but uh, have you dealt with anything like that with uh, uh, visually impaired folks not being able to get COVID-19 tested because they couldn't uh, get through a drive-through location? No, and that's a fascinating issue. Um, I, I have not heard of insurance companies only covering drive-through testing. That's, okay, that's, well, I, I mean, it wasn't a matter of only covering drive-through. It was a matter of they, they covered a couple of specific sites, and they were all drive-through. I see, I see, I see. Uh, yeah. um, no, that's a, that's a really, really interesting issue and something that I think is worth looking, up, looking into on our end, um, particularly if, if the only sort of like county-funded or county-organized uh, places are drive-through. Yeah, it was a little more complicated than that. In my case, the county-funded places didn't have the turnaround. I was actually going in for a surgical procedure, and they wanted a 48-hour turnaround. And, I uh, see. So that was the issue. Okay. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a really, really interesting issue, and that's something that is definitely worth looking into. Sheila? Sheila, are you going to mute? There you go. No, you haven't done it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go on to, um, oh, there you go. 
I didn't, uh, I thought I'd clicked it. Um, Sheila Gunn Cushman, Oakland, um, San Francisco chapter. Um, one thing I want to say is Amazon.com in relation to, I, you're saying delivery services and, and you're not thinking of that and I understand it, but um, I have had a flotilla of issues with Amazon.com uh, and I haven't used them before the COVID times. The other thing I want to throw at you is um, Eventbrite. Um, I've had troubles using Eventbrite and I have found it not to be accessible. And I don't use JAWS, I use NVDA. And I don't use an iPhone, I use an Android. So it's like there's this assumption that there's only two things that blind folks use and that's not true. Check. Yeah, Thank Sheila, you. there's no question Eventbrite is less than accessible. I think many of us have had the same you know, problems that you've had. Well, it actually works when things are set right, coded right. So that actually, that I guess that ties back in to the, the issue Alice was raising earlier about event registration. So Eventbrite is, is sort of in your all experience one of the one of the sites that's really problematic. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know if they, yes. if they do a lot yes. of virtual or not. Do they do virtual ones, Sheila or Alice? Um, what has happened is that a lot of nonprofits use Eventbrite, including the Lighthouse for the Blind. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, I don't know if it's just really confusing or inaccessible. It's just not something that I've been able to successfully navigate. And I've tried many times with many different things. Sean, I think it would be well worth checking that out. This is Judy Wilkinson. Um, we actually used Eventbrite for a fundraiser a couple of years ago and talked with them a lot. And it was, it was, it was a challenge. Let's put it that way. And I think they haven't done anything in that many years. It maybe it's time to go check them out. All right. Yeah. I think we're going to have to move on. I want to thank Sean, uh, for that great update. I think it's brought out a lot of potential issues. Um, and remember, if folks uh, didn't catch his email, want to get in touch with him, just uh, contact me, and I'll certainly hook you up. Yeah, please All do. Right. Please do reach out. And thank you very much. And uh, take care. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, it's back to Judy. Thank you, Jeff. I uh, I think we could have a door prize. I'm going to be known as the door prize lady. <laughs> The number is 88, which is, wow, Judy Wilkinson. <laughs> okay. This is completely you... folks. Oh, we need an investigation. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're, we're going to move on with this one door prize right now, and we'll we'll give several more before the afternoon's over but uh we now have uh going to turn it over to we now have co-chairs of our bylaws committee gabe chaired that committee for as the english say donkey's years and we now have two co-chairs sarah harris and david jackson so sarah and david take it away all right so sarah's here um David, can we get you to raise your hand so Deb can unmute you? 
Okay, let's see. Uh, don't see um, Dave. Oh, David Jackson. Is he on his actual? He, he was in the panelists section. I don't know if he still is. Oh well, then if he's in the panelists, he can unmute oh, himself. He can do it himself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here. Looking, I'm looking in the okay, wrong place for you. Okay. All right. I, w- I wasn't sure. All right. Sorry. All right. All right. So as Judy said, um, I'm Sarah Harris and my co-chair is David Jackson. Our committee consists of uh, good old Gabe Griffith, Stephen Mendelson, and Frank Welty. Um, and Dave, why don't you introduce our recording? Thanks to Steve and Guillermo. All right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Uh, we have uh, a couple of bylaws, and uh, I want to go ahead and have uh, Guillermo. They've been recorded. Uh, thank you uh, for doing that, Guillermo. And then after uh, they've been read, I have some remarks that I'd like to make. So please go ahead and make the start the recording, please. This is our first proposed amendment to the CCB bylaws. Current language. Section 5.5.7, for removal of an officer or director, a three-fourths voice vote, except that no vote shall take place without the officer or director being given the opportunity to offer a defense. Proposed change, remove voice vote. New language, section 5.5.7, for removal of an officer or director, three-fourths, except that no vote shall take place without the officer or director being given the opportunity to offer a defense. That is the proposed amendment. Thank you uh, very much. That's that's number one. Are you ready for number two now as well? Yes. Okay, here we go. This is our second proposed change to the CCB bylaws. Current language, section 6.3.2. Candidates interested in running for the board are strongly encouraged to submit a candidate statement no less than 45 days prior to the first day of the convention. All candidates will have up to five minutes at the time of elections to have up to two people speak on their behalf. Proposed change. Insert. Only candidates who submit a candidate statement will be eligible to participate in a candidate's forum. Slight rewrite to the last sentence for clarity. New language. Section 6.3.2. Candidates interested in running for the board are strongly encouraged to submit a candidate statement no less than 45 days prior to the first day of the convention. Only candidates who have submitted a candidate statement will be eligible to participate in a candidate's forum, which will occur prior to the first day of the convention. During elections, all candidates will have up to five minutes to have up to two people speak on their behalf. That is the end of the proposed amendment. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, and um, I'd like to thank Steve Bauer for the, uh, the reading of those two bylaws. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to let you know that this, these bylaws don't happen in a vacuum. Um, and I want to thank those people who attended the uh, open calls uh, they were very instrumental in helping us go forward with these, and I'm very appreciative as the, as the rest of our group is. Thank you very much, and we look forward to uh, passing these tomorrow. We want you, if you have questions, to, to think about it, 
uh, and to come and, and listen and um, do this. Thank you very much. There is a yes, hand raised. There is, do you want um, to... There's no discussion okay. right now. The discussion okay. will be tomorrow. Okay. Back to you, okay. Judy. Okay, Sarah. Um, uh, if you would lower that hand. I did. Um, now, if that person who raised their hand had some other issue besides wanting to discuss the bylaws, which of course today just have their first reading, could you raise your hand again if there's something else you'd like to address to the floor? A different person has raised their hand. Do you want to call on a person on that person? Yes. Okay. Uh, Jordan. Uh, Jordan lo lowered her hand, so she's okay. Okay. Her. Okay. So um, we have no hands at this time. That's correct. Quite, uh, th okay. Yes. Good. Okay. That's correct. We are moving ahead of schedule, and we knew this could happen. So I'm glad that uh, Frank Wealthy checked in couple of moments ago because it is time for our credentials and nominating reports and Frank Wealthy served ably as he's done now for several years as chair of both of those committees. So Frank, your turn. Good afternoon, Madam President, and I will need to, uh, I'm having a, a temporary computer glitch, so I'm going to need to take my two reports in reverse order if, if that would be your pleasure. That is perfectly fine, um, Frank. All right, so we will begin with the nominating committee report. And uh, the nominating committee held its meeting on Wednesday, June 10th. And we, as a result, we have the following slate of nominees for tomorrow's election. For the Office of President, we have Gabe Griffith. For the Office of First Vice President, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'm having a, a reading issue here, just a moment. Sarah Harris, for the Office of Second Vice President, we have Rob Turner. And for the board positions, we have Larry Gassman, Guillermo Robles, Jeff Tom, and Frank Welty. And those are the nominees from the nominating committee. Frank, can I just interrupt you? Do, do we not also have treasurer up this year? I did overlook treasurer, yes. Also, the treasurer is Lisa, Lisa Presley-Thomas. I skipped that one. I apologize. <laughs> okay, Frank, are you? can you access your other report, or do you need a couple of minutes? Uh, about two minutes, and I should be ready. Okay, well, then let me go back to explaining the president's door prizes. And I'll explain that and we'll give one away before the, as, as one of the last things we do. One of the things I promised myself was after I finished my office, I was going to go to seize candies and buy myself a big fat box of chocolates and just enjoy it. I've been on a fairly restrictive diet for several years and, and it was just going to be my way of just giving myself a treat. And then I thought, well, why should I have all the calories? I want to share some of the calories with my friends in the council. 
So throughout the weekend, there will be several president's door prizes. And I, whoever wins this, I will call you and talk to you about what kind of seized candy you like. Do you like nuts and chews? Do you want Victoria toffee? Uh, we can, we can, and then I'll some, when I can get in there early July, probably, um, uh, and, you know, get in there with my assistant, I will, we will ha order and have shipped to you your own private box of C's candy. So that I, I explain it now, but so when you hear the, the words president's door prize, that's my door prizes this weekend to celebrate, you know, the fact that, um, that sounds funny to say celebrate I'm leaving office. It's not quite that way. It's just to share something with you that I care about. I love the CCB and I love C candy. Get the C's, get that connection, get that fun. CCB and C's candy. Okay. Frank, have I stalled long enough or do we need to draw a door prize? Yes, you have. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> Thank you. I, I had a computer reboot just before it was time for me to come up. So, I, <laughs> All right. California Council of the Blind 2020 Credentials Report. Chapter or affiliate, ACB Capital Chapter. President Regina Brink. Number of home chapter members, 40. Number of votes, five. Delegates, Joni Patch. I'm, I'm sorry. Votes, eight, excuse me. Delegate, Joni Patchy. Alternate delegate, Maria Smith. Moment. Nominating committee representative, Joni Patchy. <clears throat> chapter affiliate, active inland blind Valley's chapter. President, Alan Ramos. Number of home chapter members, 14. Number of votes, five. Delegate, Alan Ramos. Alternate delegate, Adrian Hermosillo. Nominating committee representative, Adrian Hermosillo. Chapter affiliate, Bayview chapter. President, Laura Lee Kastner. Number of home chapter members, 35. Number of votes, seven. Delegate, Connie Skeen. Alternate delegate, Ray Marcus. Nominating Committee Representative, Connie Skeen. Braille Revival League of California. President, Mike Keithley. 13 members, number of votes, five. Delegate, Mike Keithley. Alternate delegate, Frank Welty. Nominating Committee Representative, Mike Keithley. California Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. President, Frank Welty. Members, 27, votes, five. Delegate, David Jackson. Alternate delegate, Nancy Unger. Nominating committee representative, Margie Donovan. California Council of Citizens with Low Vision. President, Bernice Kandarian. Number of votes, five. Delegate, Bernice Kandarian. Alternate delegate, Eugene Lozano, Jr. Nominating committee representative, Bernice Kandarian. California Library Users of America. President Bonnie Rennie, 42 members, number of votes, five. Delegate Susan Glass, alternate delegate Vita Zavoli. Nominating committee representative Linda Perel. California Council of Blind Students. 
President Andy Tom. 12 members. Number of votes, five. Delegate Andy Tom. No alternate delegate. Nominating Committee Representative Andy Tom. Contra Costa Chapter. President Joel Isaac. Number of members, 13. Votes, five. Delegate Earl Robb. Alternate Delegate Cody Meyer. Nominating Committee Representative Earl Robb. East Los Angeles CCD Chapter. President Stephanie Rude. Members, 30. Votes, six. Delegate Lynn Coates. Alternate Delegate Maria Herrera. Nominating Committee Representative Lynn Coates. Fresno Chapter, President Sarah Harris. Home Chapter Members 28, Vote 6. Delegate Roger Hood. Alternate Delegate Suzanne Hood. Nominating Committee Representative Sarah Harris. Glendale Burbank Area Chapter, President Anthony Signorello. Members 32, Vote 6. Delegate Anthony Signorello. Alternate Delegate Kevin Berkery, nominating committee representative Anthony Signorello. Golden State Guide Dog Handlers Incorporated, President Alice Turner, members 58, votes 5, delegate Alice Turner, alternate delegate Miley George, nominating committee representative Alice Turner. Greater Bakersfield Council of the Blind, President Chris Sendrick, Members 21, votes 5, Delegate Petty Valdivinos, Alternate Delegate Paul Young, Young, <laughs> Nominating Committee Representative John Ross. Greater Long Beach Chapter CCD, President Robert Went, Members 13, votes 5, Delegate Jessica Marquez, Alternate Delegate Jeremy Hill, Nominating Committee Representative Aisha Went. Greater Los Angeles Chapter, President Steve Bauer, Members 28, Votes 6. Delegate Gil Robles, Alternate Delegate Pam Metz, Nominating Committee Representative Pamela Metz. High Desert Chapter, President Darren Dobbins, 28 Members, Votes 6. Delegate Bob Acosta, Alternate Delegate Ruth Ann Acosta, Nominating Committee Representative Bob Acosta. Inland Empire Chapter, President Christine Bailey, Home Chapter Members 10, Votes 5, Delegate Christine Bailey, Alternate Alternate uh, Delegate Adele Galvez. Christine Bailey was the nominating committee representative. Orange County Chapter, President Andrea DeCotz. Members 19, votes 5. Delegate Larry, ja Larry Gassman. Alternate Delegate Andrea DeCotz. Nominating committee representative Larry Gassman. Randolph Shepard Vendors of California, President Paul Patchy Jr. 23 members, votes five. Delegate Paul Patchy Jr. Alternate delegate Tristan Kelly, nominating committee, nominating committee representative Paul Patchy Jr. Chapter affiliate 
Redwood Empire Chapter, President Diane Deutsch, members 22, votes 5, Delegate Larry Call, Alternate Delegate Annette English, Nominating Committee Representative Larry Hall, San Bernardino Chapter, President Deborah Gossett, members 40, votes 8, Delegate Deborah Gossett, uh, alternate Delegate Theodore Wilbert, Nominating Committee Representative Theodore Wilbert. San Francisco CCB Chapter, President Vita Zavoli, Members 36, Votes 7, Delegate Shana Ray, Alternate Delegate Peter Pardini, Nominating Committee Representative Vita Zavoli. San Gabriel Valley Chapter, President Pampology, Members 30, Votes 6, Delegate Gloria Broderick, Alternate Delegate Steve Amanoff, Nominating Committee Representative Steve Amanoff. Silicon Valley Council of the Blind, President Bob, Rob Turner, vote, uh, Member 63, Votes 13, Delegate Lorraine Brown, Alternate Delegate Rob Turner, Nominating Committee Representative Rob Turner. Yosemite Gateway Council of the Blind, President Margaret Buckman Garcia, Members 24, Votes 5, Delegate Margaret Buckman Garcia, Alternate Delegate Gail Miller, Nominating Committee Representative Margaret Buckman Garcia. Chapters not credentialed Golden Gate Chapter, San Diego Braille Club, and San Diego Chapter. The Humboldt Chapter had submitted its form but it is not sending any representatives to the convention. Respectfully submitted, <clears throat> Frank Welty, Steve Amanoff, William Elliott, DCD Credentials Committee. Madam Chair, this is my report. Thank you, Frank. There are two uh, hands raised. Okay, I'm looking probably for someone to uh, make a motion to accept Frank's report. So recognize the first hand. If that is not what you're going to do, I'll ask you to wait a minute. Okay, so we just had a whole bunch more hands no go up. So there you go. There, that's Rob and moved and Sarah seconded. Sarah seconded. Okay, so we have it moved and seconded to accept the credentials report. Mm -hmm. So now everybody who you should raise your hand to, to accept the credentials report. And here okay, hold again, on. Deb, we're just looking for yeah, you know, yeah, a bunch yeah. Of okay, hands. then just a second. I need to get rid of them all because we got lots. Okay, we're good. Oh, well, there, okay. guys, you need to wait until Judy calls for the vote. Again, put your, she's, she's, she can put your hands down except with a single flick of a switch. So yeah. she's going to put all of your hands down. And now, if you are ready to accept the credentials report, please raise your hand. I'm ready for them to vote. Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Are we getting some hands? Yes. Yes. All right. Uh, you have 30, 39 so far. You have, uh, 40. Yeah. You're, you're, oh. let's see on the other side, your panelists, you can also vote. Yeah. I right, forgot. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You, uh, you're well over 50 now. So you okay. are. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's, in, unless it's close, we won't have to do this again. Yeah. Um, please lower everybody's hand. Okay. Moment. Okay. 
Okay, if anybody is against accepting the, the credentials report, please raise your hand. Mm -hmm. No hands? Uh, oh, sorry about that. Uh, yes, there are a couple of hands. Okay. So we have a couple of no votes to accepting the nominating, uh, the credentials committee report, but the eyes clearly have it. And so we have accepted and seated these delegations for tomorrow's vote. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Frank and your committee for the, for the, all the work that you've done to do this and for the two meetings that you held uh, are some of our first virtual zoom meetings. Now, and thanks um, to all, and thanks to all those who were so helpful in cooperating and participating in those meetings. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we're definitely charting new territories here. Now, does anyone have a question that they would like to, to bring before the floor before I make final announcements and we do final door prizes? I'm ready to entertain any anybody who seeks the floor. Jordan. What was that? I, I didn't catch who. Jordan. Jordan, what is what is it you wish to say, Jordan? I had a question. Uh, are there is there a push for more Braille voting material and alternate formats uh, in regards to voting material? No, we're not talking about voting right now, and I'm not qualified to answer that question, Jordan. Does anybody on the panel feel they are? Right now, Jordan, we don't seem to have anybody who can answer that question. I know the ACB leadership list has had a couple of posts about states where they're looking at uh, Braille voting materials, but um, I can't answer your question any further than that right now. Mm -hmm. Are there any other questions? Yes. Um... Uh, uh, Regina Marie. Go ahead, Regina. Who, by the way, I'm going to just toot our horn and her horn a little bit, is one of our ACB Chase Fellows this year. Yeah. So we're very proud of Regina Marie. And uh, go ahead with your with your. She issue, needs to unmute. Regina. Okay, I found it. Okay, thank you, Judy. Um, I just wanted to correct the pronunciation of my name, which you did pronounce correctly, but uh, just when you see that R-E-G-I-N-A, don't pronounce the long I, if you could help it. <laughs> it's it's the British way I'm not making any commitments about that. I'm looking at 100 <laughs> names, and I'm not trying to insult you, oh, but I won't was, keep track of it. It wasn't you. It, yeah. it was not you. But uh, okay, yeah, you know, no, that's the only it issue. Was, yeah, it was just how Jaws says it. So, right. Okay. Well, okay. Yeah, I can't help. Thank you. Um, it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't rhyme with body parts. Right. Yes. Thank right. you. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, any other hands? Yes. Um, Sheila. Right, Sheila. I thank you, Judy. I just wanted to bring um, something to CCB's attention. 
that I just learned about and I don't know anything more than what I'm saying. Zoom is upgrading its service soon, apparently, to be end-to-end encryption. It already is. Okay, but they are going to... Yeah, but they're doing it for paid and unpaid, and I don't know the differences. Anyway, um, there is some concern, apparently, that phone um, numbers will soon not be allowed or available. And I I know that a lot of our folks use that, and so I would urge folks to keep an eye on that. Maybe, Deb, you could – can you shed some light on this? Right. Um, there's a, a lot of rumors and a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, I have not seen anything officially from Zoom that is changing the protocol of allowing phone numbers. Um, but, um, they have, they have set up the end in encryption. We've been using it for some time, about two months. They originally were not going to do it for the free accounts, which was a little beyond me. But, um, I mean, as to why they wouldn't. But um, they they originally were not, but they now are, which I think is a good thing. Um, services do change over time. If they decide to stop supporting phone numbers, then obviously we, some of us will probably be looking for uh, alternatives. But um, they haven't put anything out officially that says they're going to do that. So, uh, you know, it. it's kind I of... Got it from, <laughs> thank you, I got it from KCBS, so it's not... Yeah, I didn't just oh. pop it out of nowhere. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is you didn't get it from Zoom. So if we don't have it yeah. from Zoom, we really don't know yeah. that for sure. Yeah. And they often test pilot these ideas and then change their mind when they get amounts of uh, feedback. So if they do you know, put out something, there will always be a grace period before they actually implement it. And that would be a time you could comment on that for sure. Yeah. Okay. Are there other, anybody else with their hand raised, Deb? Um... Uh, Jordan. Jordan, go ahead. But this is the last time I'm going to call on you for this session. Is Zoom going to be using, uh, is Zoom going to be using audio captions for the capture code? Because I have had issues registering for virtual conferences and meetings. Ah. online because of the capture code. I've never seen Zoom use anything like captcha. I don't uh, uh, there's a there's a condition under which you can get a captcha from Zoom. Um it isn't common, but it's been happening to me a lot lately because I'm managing about nine accounts, so they don't trust me anymore. Um but uh their captcha is one of the most accessible ones I've ever seen. Great. If they do it to oh, you, it it's a it's a nuisance, but it's actually one of the best audio captures I've ever seen. Okay. okay. I see the same thing. Yeah, yeah it's really it's amazing, and I don't do well with the same thing. I yeah. hate them, but it's yeah. accessible. It's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I Thank hate you. them too. Yeah. Okay, um, Jordan, if you would uh, let let's move because I hear background noise. But thank you for the yeah. question. Okay. Anybody uh, else? No. Okay. I'm going to go on to a couple of final Oh, Steve actually has an, an Steve has his hand okay. up. Okay, Steve. Steve Amanon. Yes, audio captions. If you don't like, if you can't understand what you're hearing, you re, uh, say you want a new audio caption, and, and that way you get another chance, and it's very accessible. Thank you.
Yeah. Okay. Yes, you're. Thank you, Steve, for clarifying. That's it. Okay. I think we're ready to wrap up a little bit early, and that's very good. I have a couple of uh, final announcements. Uh, one is to remind you that we're resuming at six o'clock, which is a little early, but our, our chief speaker in the beginning of the meeting is Cindy Van Winkle, actually Cindy Hollis now, and Cindy is, is uh, way behind us in time, and we don't want to keep her up too late. And she is dynamic and energetic, and she is ACB's membership uh, director. So you won't want to miss Cindy's presentation. So please do rejoin us at six sharp so that we can get underway uh, with this, this evening's activities. And the, on the remember, we will have remembrances uh, of our people that we have passed away this year. I will have my report. Jeff will have his report. So it will be a uh, full evenings of activities. So, and I, I want to also take this opportunity to thank you, Deb, for so ably being our Zoom um, operator this afternoon. And we have three different Zoom operators for the rest of the weekend because they're getting their practice for the ACB convention by helping us with our convention. And again, Deb, thank you for setting all that up for us. Oh, glad to do it. And, okay, so Lisa, let's have a president's door prize and Ooh. see who's going to get some C's candy. Okie dokie. The lucky number is 56, which is Jean Lozano. Okay. Okay, I'll be definitely getting in touch with Jean about that. But let's have another door prize as well so that we can uh, finish the day in style. Sure, why not? The lucky number is 182, which is Sheila Gunn-Cushman. Okay, Sheila. Now, Lisa, can you tell me right quick how many we've given away this afternoon, you know, of our you know, the ones in your fly, your list? Uh, we have given away a total of six. Oh, well, now we're going to give one final one, but it's going to be for $50. You can make a note of that, right, Lisa? If we give a $50 one, we're going to yes. give $50 away right now. Let me spin my wheel really good here. And the luck, oops, I didn't hit it right. The lucky number is 108, which is Loreen Feveny, T-H-E-V-E-N-Y. Yes, yes, Feveny, Loreen, okay. Well, that's very good. And we are ending a little bit early. So please enjoy your late afternoon, grab a quick bite, and we'll see you again when Gabe resides for the evening starting at 6 p.m. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. I declare the first session, uh, I declare the, the California Council of the Blind in recess.